no, we're actually at about 3,500. But we're getting there. Yep. It's like eating an elephant, Ken. What's that? Running a podcast is like eating an elephant. It's uh, one leg at a time. Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I'm joined, like I am every fortnight, by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Very best. I'm I'm not in Studio 598 today, though. You are not in Studio Five Ninety Eight. We were actually we were just discussing your the uh, the art in your in your office. Your office is is more full each time I see it, which I think means you're settling in. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a you know the process of settling into my my territory here. Um, I've uh, you know I've secured. A, I'm going to put up fortifications soon. You know I'll have to practice complex exchange with my neighbors. Uh, and I actually have to do that because my uh, my neighbor controls my heat and my cooling. <laughs> And uh, therefore, uh, if Christine is not happy and we have not, uh, uh, then then I either sweat or freeze. So that's right. And yeah. and Ken, for the listener, just just as a little trivia fact, am I right that you are your office is on? Is it the longest indoor hallway in Canada? I, so that is the claim to fame. I think is that this is the longest hallway in Canada. So if, yeah, if the yeah, listener... all hallways are indoors, but it's a yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah it's a hallway, not a tunnel. Whatever the distinction. Would yeah, be. and I'm I'm a. About at the midpoint, and I would say there's probably a good 75 to 100 meters in either direction. That's um, great. I haven't paced it out, but um, but it is, yeah, it's incredibly long. And apparently it's appear- appeared in a couple of movies, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. They, you know, when I was in high school, we had this game where we would we would take rolling office chairs and uh, start at each end of, our, of the floor in our dormitory. And then um, this was on the men's wing. I don't think they did this on the women's wing. And um and and we would it was called chair jousting. You would you would put a friend in the uh, in the chair, and then his steed would be the runner. And you you know you you put them in like a ideally a pillow and like a bike helmet. Um, and then they would they would go after each other with plungers. You'd run at them, and then you could you could have some pretty horrendous collisions. But but at the kind of at the longest hallway in the world, you could have the championships. It could be fatal. Think of all the speed you could get. Yeah, yeah. Jousting. You'd probably have to go through three or four um uh, uh fire extinguishers to get the thrust to get you uh <laughs> at least into the midpoint here but i i would be i'd probably have front row seats for the uh for the eventual collision so excellent well people did not come here for our sports commentary ken um <laughs> so uh so we've got a very special show lined up for them today we've we've got um uh, we've got matt betts uh, is we're who we're going to be um we're going to be interviewing but i thought we would we would start off um we uh we're sponsored as we are every fortnight by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. We're very grateful for their um, sponsorship. And um, we also do not yet, Ken, sort of astonishingly, uh, we don't yet have a, a new name for this podcast. We're still the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And the frequent listener will know that we're still shopping around for a new name. And, and um, we've got some exciting prizes here. Um, if uh, if the listener were to be the person to send in the name that fit this podcast just perfectly, and and Ken, if they did have that name, where would they email it to? Uh, they would email it to New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. 
And that's archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's great. And so um, the Matt Betts, in addition to being an archaeologist, is uh, is a historical consultant. And we're going to hear from him a, a little bit about that work. But he's, you know, he's done um, a, a good bit of work on HMS Terror. In fact, wrote HMS Terror, the design fitting in voyages of a polar discovery ship, which has been in the news a bit lately. But that relates a little bit to our um, our prize this week, if you're to send in the lucky the lucky winning name. And, and so, listener, have you ever wondered how you could make your life scarier while retaining historical accuracy? Um, and so many of our listeners will know um, about the HMS Terror and the kind of expertise that Matt Betts has brought to HMS Terror. And while Matt was not involved in this um, specific initiative, um, we understand that the folks who were took great inspiration um, from his book. And so, um, listener, we're just thrilled to let you know that Six Flags Ottawa is about to launch a new themed ride called the Terror 1845. <laughs> it, and here's the here's the catch. It's open only in January and February. Okay, it hasn't opened yet, but this January and February it'll be open. And what we do is that basically you get stuffed into a basically accurate model of the Terror. You can cross-check this with Matt's book um, as you're doing this, along with two tons of tobacco, 800 liters of whiskey, and 8,000 cans of lead-lined tinned food. And it's got just a hint of botulism. And once you're jammed into this ride and you go into your thing, I Ken will join you. I actually won't. I get motion sick, listener. Um, and so therefore, I'm not going to be able to join you on this. Um, but after your thrilling ride, Ken, Matt, and I are going to join you for a special tasting menu at the Terror. Um, Chop House, it's called. And um, it's some exquisitely prepared cuts of, oh, oh. Okay, well, they're exquisitely prepared cuts, listener, um, and and we don't need to belabor the details now. And well, anyway, listener, this one is truly not to be missed. And so, Ken, where would the listener um, send in their lucky uh, answer? Uh, they would be sending it into New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. Yeah, uh, that's great. Um, I'm sure they have a vegetarian option too, um, in case you're uh, in case you're interested in that. Um, and so, Ken, in that mailbox, uh, what have we got? Uh, we have, I'm, I'm just noticing, it appears that my uh, USB camera has failed. Um, oh, it does appear that it's failed. Yep. It, uh, in fact, my computer is saying it cannot start the video. Fascinating. It's a good thing we're not a video podcast. It is not. The, um, yeah, no, you, it, they would just be seeing this, this image of you from uh, 2011? Uh, no, that'd be probably 2018 or 2019. That was when oh, I was that's... doing field work. Some chert in the background. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see the chert. Yep. Yeah. No, I see the, the chariot, the chainsaw shoes, everything. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do a little reset here. We're there back. You are. Yeah. You were so, so excited by the prize read. You bumped the camera. Uh, no, I think the camera, uh, when you purchase it for $20 off of Amazon, you, uh, roll the dice on whether or not it's going to last for any length of time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Same company that was making that dongle. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the mailbox, uh, we've got, uh, we've got one listener mail. Um, I've managed to get rid of all of the spam from Reddit. Um, and we've got a, we've got some podcorn opportunities obviously mm -hmm. um but uh we have a we have a writer in today richard okay. um uh his email is titled informative podcast and he said hello gents i really enjoyed the podcast i've been laid up with a couple of ailments over the last few months oh, no. which has given me a rare opportunity to concentrate on my passion for history 
I've been reading about the local post-contact era for years. You guys have grabbed my interest in with the pre-contact era part of your podcast. You've introduced me to new people and books to research. This is now filling my recovery time along with a free online course put on by the University of Alberta called Indigenous Canada. I oh, suggested great. if you can make the time. Thanks for taking the time to create this podcast. It's very informative and very entertaining. I look forward to more. Well, thank you for writing, Richard. He has a PS, a postscript in here. And he suggests that Underground New Brunswick may be a good name, but I think the current name is fine. You should guys, you guys should just call Invicta and take the prizes for yourself. Well, <laughs> Richard, I think we'd be awful, awful greedy to take all these prizes. And and uh, and he and he's got one little sort of post postscript here that says a little <laughs> side note about one of your prizes for naming the podcast. I've taken my wife and kids on the tour of the St. John Fortification System and across the ferry to Fort Anne. My wife has had the rare opportunity to do this tour, along with many other tours a few times. When I told my wife of the prize you were offering, she said, quote, at least they have a Mustang, unquote. And so, <laughs> so the, uh, I believe that was the uh, the uh, uh, the tour of uh, the tour of uh, fortifications tour or something like that. That's, I, that's the one I think. Um, I think given our, our extensive experience with my um, my rental points from field school, we we knew a thing or two about fast cars and thought exactly. Exactly. I thought that we'd so. stick it. Well, so thanks thank very much, you, Richard. Uh, and actually, he goes by Ricky. So thank you for writing oh, in, Ricky. And, yes, thank uh, you, Ricky. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And uh, hope if you, you feel better to, too. Yeah, hope and, you're feeling better. Yeah. And and we'll uh, we'll get an email back to you, and we'll we'll get you some stickers in the mail, and and uh, uh, hopefully that will help as well. Yes, exactly. Um, and so uh, so Ken, we're gonna I think um, we're gonna have this interview with Matt Betts. We should let the listener know that um, the uh, this was this was. We're still working on on the the kind of conversation that has three people going at once. The listener is going to notice that um, in a in a rare circumstance, um, I talk over Ken and I actually just keep plowing on. And it turned <laughs> out that we we were uh, we were adjusting our 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 gain in volume levels a little bit to try to equalize. And so as a result, I was cranked up so high in my ears that I just didn't hear Ken talking until I would look up and see him looking sort of chagrined and sheepish. And it's an experience Ken's never had before is being spoken <laughs> over in fact. So it was actually kind of fun. Um, but anyway, we apologize for the, the little pileups at the beginnings of some of the questions. Uh, that's we, what was going on. Yeah, um, we, we did work through it, though. And 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 I think, too, that uh, the, the listener will understand that we're the, the second season here. The format is a little bit different than the first, where in the first season you heard Gabe and I talking about specific topics. And now we're sort of introducing those topics and going to other experts um, uh, and interviewing them. And so uh, one of the things that we are learning is uh, there's a there's a bit of an art to interviewing. Um, and one of them, I think, is probably that if you are both interviewing somebody, we, there's some kind of signaling thing that we need to do. Oh, is there? I, well, I don't know. I'm guessing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it possibly is. Um, Yeah, I, I guess. That sounds like it would take a lot of preparation, but we can see what we could do. Yeah, we're kind of a series of obscure hand signals. Yeah, or we have to. Um, I have to figure out how to how to edit these properly with multiple channels of sound, uh, and then we don't need to worry about the gain. Yeah, I, I guess that's possible too. Um, but the other reason, uh, and something else that's going to be exciting about this um, this uh, interview this interview is that we right now. Um, so so Ken told you he is a doctor. He didn't tell you he is also in some sense the doctor. And uh, there appears to be a is, Ken. Is that a blue British police call box behind you? <laughs> are are you a time lord? <laughs> are are we about to? Uh, are you about to climb into the TARDIS? And we're going to travel back in time, but it's going to seem like we're traveling forward in time in order to interview Matt Betts. 
yeah yeah we're gonna be uh revisiting what it was like on thursday evening of last week fantastic okay so um well listener ken and i are about to hop into the tardis and um and we'll we'll see you soon um so we're joined uh this fortnight by a very special guest star and that is matt fats and matt is currently the curator of eastern archaeology at the canadian museum of history he was educated at the University of Toronto, and he's authored numerous articles and a handful of books now, Matt. I think um, Subsistence and Culture in the Western Canadian Arctic, Placemaking in the Pretty Harbor, and the Archaeology of the Atlantic Northeast. Um, how are you, Matt? I'm great. You forgot one book, though. I was going to say, boat book. I was going to say, the reason I forgot that, uh, that, that book was I was going to make you talk about it in a second here. <laughs> uh, but, so you're also a historical consultant. Yes, uh, occasionally on uh, TV shows and movies. The uh, for uh, what was it most recently was the HBO. Yeah, uh, no, AMC uh, did the Terror, which was a mini series, and um, currently working on a movie, but I can't disclose what that is yet. Oh, oh. I see. That's exciting. Hey. <laughs> cool. Um, but so, so Matt, yeah, uh, one of the things the listener is going to notice from that that list and from what we just talked about is that you haven't always or exclusively been a Northeast archaeologist. So, how did you end up? Um, tell us about your career. How did you end up working out here? Well, I started training at the University of Toronto, um, and I've always been interested in uh, animal remains and the relationships between humans and animals. And so U of T was the best place to do that. I trained there as a zoo archaeologist uh, under Max Friesen. Um, And so my initial training was as an Arctic archaeologist. I studied the ancestors of the Inuvialuit in the Western Canadian Arctic. I did my master's and my PhD work um, um, with that community. And... uh, I had always intended to become uh, sort of a uh, Arctic archaeologist for my career, but um, uh, life has a way of changing things rapidly. And uh, a job at the museum came up, at the Canadian Museum of History, um, in 2007. Um, and I was born and raised in in eastern Canada in the Maritimes. And so it was sort of um, an interesting proposition to potentially work uh, in the place where I was born and raised. And I was lucky enough to get the job, and um, actually, it worked out really well. I was able to trans- transfer all my skills to the East Coast and um, haven't really looked back. It's um, an amazing place to work with so many questions to be answered, as we're going to find out today. And um, it's been a wonderful transition, um, and especially getting to work with the Mi'kmaq communities and with uh, uh, colleagues like you and, and Ken. Um, it's really been a fantastic transition, um, and now it's really been more of a career it's been 16 years so that's right yeah the um time flies when you're having fun um, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so what were the initial um were there some initial research questions that drew you um to the to the region i mean obviously getting the job drew you to the region to some degree but but what was the when you first thought about maritime archaeology what was the stuff you were um curious to, to learn about well i was sort of struck by the fact that it was one of the few places left in in North America, really, where the, the cultural historical questions hadn't been, the, the gaps in the cultural historical record really hadn't been filled in. And so um, what an opportunity to do sort of primary research and explore uh, past lifeways in really a, a black box. Uh, the, I mean, there had been lots of great work done in the Quadi region, um, but uh, Nova Scotia uh, New Br- uh, and PEI really hadn't had a lot of, of academic archaeology and um, I was really, really interested in sort of uh, exploring these human-animal relationships that are so prominent in the Arctic because of preservation, exploring these in the unique shell midden uh, context or shell heap context that we find 
in Nova Scotia and and in New Brunswick. Um, and so I was lucky enough to sort of uh, uh, strike up a good relationship with uh, uh, people at the Nova Scotia Museum and sort of asking around and and uh, where if you had your your option, where would you work? And they all said Port Jolie. And so uh, I immediately zeroed in on Port Jolie and started a community project there and the rest is history. So Great. Yeah. And, that, and that's where Ken and I met you. We were students on that project. Um, yep. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I, came, I came down for a couple of days and ended up staying for three weeks, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the honor yeah, was too good to turn down. Yeah. Those are fun down. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Matt, an amazing um, archaeology. I mean, um, more complex and nuanced and um, fine grained than I ever would have expected uh, having read the literature from Nova Scotia, you know. Well, could we, could we, I, I wanted to wheel back here for a second. So you, yeah, yeah. you're interested in animal remains and um, your, your focus has mostly been on uh, coastal sites. And why would those be good places to look for animal remains in archaeological context? It's all about the preservation, as you know. So um, these shell heaps uh, are just essentially large concentrations of clamshells that are discarded as refuse, but incorporated with that is all the detritus of everyday life, animal bones, uh, pottery, sometimes house floors, um, and other artifacts. And because of the calcium carbonate leaches out of clamshells as they slowly degrade it neutralizes nova scotia's normally acidic soils and allows for bone preservation which you just don't get anywhere else in the province and so um and the, the bone preservation we are finding in port jolly rivals any of the the great preservation you see on the west coast or any other shell middens in south america um and um i mean it's not it's not exactly like permafrost uh preservation but it's really excellent and so um i do coastal better. It smells better, yeah. And, and, and the coastal archaeology really is the is the place where the animal bones are preserved, and so that's where I, I what that's what I targeted. Yeah, right. And so the listener is interested though in 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 some of that research from uh, Port Jolly, which is on the south shore of Nova Scotia. That's the placemaking in the Pretty Harbor book, uh, Matt. That's right. Yeah. And that's a, a 10 years of collaboration with Katie First Nation and with you and with Ken. We all have papers in that book. Um, and um, really what it is is as a return to the old style site monograph, uh, in this case, sites monograph. And what I really was interested in doing was doing a, a, a like a modern data dump of everything that we found, uh, our initial interpretations, just so that other archaeologists and community members um, could access all the data that we re recovered and all of the preliminary inferences we made from that data. I mean, we'll be analyzing it for years um, but I, I really saw one of the gaps I saw in the archaeological record when I started working in the Maritimes is sort of the lack of um, detailed publication on, 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 on sites and stratigraphy and the artifacts that come from them. It kind of got back to Mercury's, like uh, what, what Mercury sort of originally intended to be too, right? That's right. Yeah. And so I should tell you, tell you so move back a little bit. It was published as part of the museum's Mercury series. And the Mercury series was designed as a site monograph series um, to to uh, showcase all of the data that was being uncovered from the uh, the museum's archaeology rescue program. Um, and really, it's it's where a large portion of the academic archaeology of Canada is written is tied up in that Mercury series. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that I could participate in this tradition of producing a site monograph for that series. So, but how disappointed were you about not having an orange cover? <laughs> <laughs> not that 
<laughs> it worked out okay. It worked You're, out okay. I, I mean, I, first we, we have full color. We have four. Yeah, we have four full color plates, and uh, it's wonderful. The old series was a little bit faster, uh, more uh, shall we say, less proofreading, and <laughs> and 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 speed was of the essence in, in those days. Uh, the, this day is being done by the University of Ottawa Press, and we, they really do an excellent job. So, yeah, it still uses glue. the only one half horse glue, though. You know, it could use a use a little more stick. That's right. Yeah, the notorious orange covers keep falling off. So, yeah. yeah. But one um, way that your your volume differed from, I think, maybe the classic Mercury's or the classic kind of um, you know data rich site monograph is that it also is a chronicle of uh, you know decades long community engaged research program on the South Shore. Yeah, and, and that was the right from the beginning. Um, the only way I was ever trained to do archaeology was to do community archaeology. Um, and so, um, and I wouldn't want to do it any other way. And so the project really was a collaboration between Acadia First Nation and the Museum of History. And, and lots of other researchers uh, came aboard, like you and Ken and uh, Dave Black from the University of New Brunswick. Uh, the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative was involved. And of course, Nova Scotia Museum uh, at times. Um, and uh, even Memorial University of Newfoundland, some staff from there have been working on it on the project. And so um, it, it was a community project in all senses of the word. Um, we sort of started not knowing what we would find, uh, seeing what the community was interested in. The community was just uh, initially interested in exploration. And that led to all sorts of in, important insights that uh, this sort of open-ended research program, find what we can, slot it into the known cultural history. It really worked out very, very well. And, and um, I think we pushed back the the boundaries of sort of what we know about the maritime woodland on so, at least the South Shore on that project. And and the community really, um, pardon the pun, dug into it in a, in a great way and and, and um, embraced some of the things we found and, and, and turned some of the artifacts into so some real touchstone artifacts that are, are now being incorporated into exhibitions across the province. And so, yeah, even the, uh, the chief even wrote the the foreword uh, to that book. Yeah, yeah uh, it, that was amazing. And 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 uh, she's a very busy woman. And I was very, very happy that she did that. They, they were really um, generous in their support for the project and really engaged. And, and um, it was uh, one of the highlights of a career working with Katie First Nation. They really uh just really were interested and engaged and, and always open for sort of the study that we were doing it was it was really fantastic yeah that project was a highlight for me too you know you sort of can't um uh my career would have, i think been very different had i not ended up uh, ended up on that uh, <laughs> on that project and it's, it's been a real joy yeah, yeah beautiful spot too like i i was back there this summer with my family and just you know uh you can't beat in terms of the art you can't beat the archaeology but also just like it's an absolutely lovely place to do work um, uh, aside from, aside from incredibly fascinating archeological work. So. Yeah. yeah I mean, from losing um, sores from the, uh, from poison ivy. Poison <laughs> ivy <yeah. laughs> it's also where I discovered I'm immune to poison ivy. That, uh, for, now. That's, uh, yeah. for now. Yeah. And I'm immune to it as well, but uh, um, yeah, well, you'll be happy to know that all the sites are now protected by a bumper crop of poison ivy. Um, uh, so much so, I think the last time Gabe and I were there, Gabe had a panic attack when, when I even <laughs> mentioned going on the site. But uh, um, I give yeah, it is their pat down from the shore. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is an amazing place, and I think every time we had lunch on that beach, and you know, how lucky that we get to work in a place like that, and that yeah. the archaeology was so so spectacular at the same time, it was, you know, it was really incredible. Um, and to be honest, so much left to do there. There's so much so much left to know about that area. 
um, that we could work in that harbor for our entire careers and still not discover everything that's left to be discovered. And so I think that actually sort of gets to what we were going to discuss with you tonight, Matt, which is that we, um, uh, you and I did a um, uh, book together, uh, yes. Atlantic Northeast, and one of the chapters we did in that um, focused on these kind of, we were sort of riffing on Kinty et al.'s article on grand questions in archaeology. And I think um, what we were really riffing on was there's, um, you know, in many ways, uh, now a long running kind of evening of conversations between, you know, you, me, and Ken, and Dave Black, and all sorts of other folks, Catherine Patton, all sorts of folks we've been in the field with, about kind of what are the big questions that we're trying to answer out here, right? And I think we're all sort of motivated by this idea that the Northeast has a lot to say about um, archaeology in general, that we're not just talking about the Northeast, but that the archaeology here is as good as it is, um, maybe not everywhere, but almost everywhere, right? <laughs> and uh, as nuanced and fine-grained as anywhere I, I could think of, yeah. Yeah, um, and so we thought we'd just maybe talk a little bit about uh, what some of the big research questions are, and I think in some ways this conversation is kind of aimed at maybe um, maybe the like uh, doughy-eyed um, uh, master students that Ken and I were when we showed up on your on your projects, right? You know, trying to figure out something exciting to work on. So, um, so, so this is the uh, what 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 am I going to do for my thesis podcast? Yeah, yeah, so if yes, you're exactly. an MA student, grab a pen, and, yeah. and Dr. Betts is going to tell you what to write about. Yes, yeah. well, well, Dr. Holyoke and Dr. Reinick as well, um, um, yeah, make sure you mention us in your acknowledgments. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess the... Send a bottle of Balvenie scotch. It's... <laughs> yeah. uh, but I guess the first thing I'll say about that is, you know, the greatest opportunity and the greatest sort of open-ended question left is, is to start with is community archaeology and you know Port Jolly is the is for me as well as my touchstone because that worked out so well but it's a good case study as well and and really your project in in Maine as well Gabe um uh you know it's um the sort of open-ended questions that lead from um just exploring the, uh, uh, a nation's archaeological resources. So in Port Jolie, we didn't know what we, th we would find. We knew that there were a lot of shelmids. We didn't really know their ages. And so it was really just a cultural historical exploration. But it led to all kinds of interesting things that the, and, and, and pathways that the community sort of allowed us to explore with them. Um, and, and really, um, there's a lot to be said for engaging with the community, um, finding a location that has uh, unex unexcavated, unexplored archaeological resources, and just doing community archaeology, and um, uh, without and, and sort of leaving the questions open ended. Um, and I, and I, I see a, one of the challenges is engaging archaeological community, uh, sorry, in, indigenous communities with their archaeological past, and so just the um, 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 the the act of doing community archaeology is going to always lead to interesting and discoveries and explorations and you know one of the one of the great things we discovered in Port Lee was this sort of a gendered aspect to the the middens and these um really wonderful shell lined uh, clay lined shells that were sort of spark holders um and an artifact that was really picked up by the community it occurs in uh, Katie First Nation art now Melissa Labrador has, has produced it mm -hmm. in her art um and just we never the artifacts been talked about in the archaeological literature but it was never discovered before we found it in Port Jolie, five of them i think 
and and um, just revealing that sort of thing. Also, the the shark tooth that we found uh, associated with a burial, um, which which we obviously reburied on site uh, right right the day after it happened, um, uh, after a ceremony by the community. But that that um, the discovery of that shark tooth led us down a path to understanding a lot about the relationship between humans and animals on the on the on the east coast and and we didn't expect to find that we were looking for that it just sort of came out by doing community archaeology and so one of the things i would say is that you know um if you're if you're interested in community archaeology the community will guide you towards these interesting questions and so i would just say one of the first things to do is that you know as long as you're doing community archaeology you're going to answer questions it might not be the grand questions uh but you'll certainly uh, you'll never go wrong so you both have good community engaged archaeology products, and I wondered if you could each uh, maybe just speak to a little bit to sort of how you approach the communities you worked with. Um, that, that's that was what my follow up was going to be is how do you, how do you start out with this work basically as somebody who like if you're a student or if you're a new researcher like at the the process of reaching out to communities. Well, I was an absolutely new researcher. I had uh, no, despite the fact that I was born in the Maritimes, I had no contacts uh, in the Maritimes. Um, and I started with humility. I, I uh, approached um, the cultural officers of Katie First Nation uh, and told them what I was interested in doing, um, uh, indicated to them that I, I wanted to start some exploratory, exploratory, exploratory work um, and, and, and let them sort of respond. Um, and it really it started with a phone call um, um, to, to, at the time, Lisa Francis was their cultural officer. Uh, it's now changed through a number a number of different officers. Um, uh, um, but, uh, you know, it started with a, a friendly phone call and a lot of humility and a lot of listening um, and um, eventually led to a exploratory field season where we had some um, community members come out. Um, and at first it was sort of tentative. We only had a couple of community members come out. Um, but uh, at time, as you sort of build trust, it takes time. So at, at, over the years, as we built trust, they become larger and larger. And eventually we had a field school and and a sort of cultural experience for, for, for kids um, uh, and all kinds of, of course, lectures and participation in cultural events. Uh, but it takes time and, and um, you know, patience and humility and time um, and, um, you know, listening, uh, listening to the wants and needs of the community are the, are the big things. And, you know, um, one thing I would say is that if a community decides that they're not interested, uh, don't be offended. They have far more uh, bigger things on their plate. Um, but but um, um, approaching it as 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 if you're working in service of the community is always the best way to do it, and really the only way to do community archaeology. So, yeah, is that in your experience too, Ken, on on your community engaged projects? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it started out with essentially reaching out to community groups when I was doing my PhD work, and and sort of letting them know who I was, what my interests were. Um, and sitting down and having conversations about, you know, what my background was, um, why I wanted to do the work, why I thought it was interesting, um, you know, why I reached out to them, you know, and, and sort of explaining in a, a kind of a regulatory sense that, you know, like one of these, you know, I want to do a community engaged project. But the other thing, too, is that um, I want to have your consent to proceed with the permitting process, right, to get archaeological permits to do this work and and maintain that consent and, you know, understand what the um, where the consent for that work may end, um, and understand too, like, uh, you know, listening to the community in some ways means that understanding that at some point, um, there may be a request to stop the work that you're working on and, and you have to kind of put pens down and move on to whatever the next thing is. 
Um, and, and certainly it's, um, it's, you know, like Matt said, it's, it, it can be a slow process sometimes. Um, uh, you know, uh, communities are really busy with all sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I like to joke that like I usually fit in during their lunch break. I, I'll pop in on a Zoom meeting for 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, uh, Lost of Boy Nation in New Brunswick is who I work most closely with. And so, you know, I'll show up and, and get to chat with everybody for 15 or 20 minutes. And then somebody will wave a hand, say, all right, Ken, we got to get back to business here. And I'll say, OK, we'll, we'll see you next time kind of thing. So, um, you know, it's it's great when you can be on the ground for extended periods of time and see face to face with people and, um, you know, certainly I had the kind of challenge of of COVID being around for the last you know two or for for two plus years of of the work that I was doing and um, and so uh, luckily had Zoom to uh, uh, to kind of uh, bridge that gap and 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 certainly with the geography now with uh, me being in Alberta and working mostly in New Brunswick but um, uh, you know moving forward it's going to be nice to be on the ground a little bit more and and you know I I hope to kind of work towards uh, really sort of. The, the kind of gold standard that Matt has, uh, Matt, you, your guys' projects have kind of set for how we do these projects on the East Coast too, so. And so I think that one of the um, things we we're going to talk about too was just, um, I feel like this is the point where I should lean into the mic and 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 say one of these questions that it seems like communities have been very interested in um, is in fact you, culture history, right? And so I, oh, this is when I lean in and I say, so culture history, is it dead? <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, I, I, I wouldn't. I I would say that it, it is in reviled in some circles. It's um um admonished, um, but it certainly isn't dead. And we all know this from uh, just practical archaeology. Everybody engages in cultural history, and it's the most fundamental way for us to organize uh, and understand the data that we um, recover. Um, um, uh, so. I would say, and you know, I, I gave a paper at, at Dave Black's Feshrift, um, um just last spring on this. Uh, we did, and um, it's um, it's a it's a difficult question because, in some respects, uh, some archaeologists believe that it's sort of an outmoded way to explore the variability and sort of describe the variability in the archaeological record. Um, but from my perspective, it's absolutely essential. Uh, for archaeologists to classify and organize their data in, in ways that it can be digestible and and uh, more importantly digestible by communities. So yeah. um, you know the the idea that you find a highly variable data set and um, decide that you can't describe it because that masks variability um, is sort of abhorrent to me um, because making sense of the data is what archaeologists are supposed to be doing. That's making sense of the archaeological record. And so, um, and this all sort of ties in with this idea that people aren't publishing site monographs anymore. Or they're publishing more um, uh, theoretical treatises on on uh, how to, how to deal with variability, or or um, they're only publishing portions of their their data because um, their focus is on journal articles. The site reports really fallen out of favor as a as a product of archaeology, and I really think that that is um, unfortunate because, uh, as we all know, it becomes increasingly difficult both to access the data and to make sense of these large um, assemblages without sort of a, an essential um, um, snapshot of what people have found and what it, where it sort of slots into uh, the uh, um, um, archaeological record. Uh, and so, um, yeah, cultural history shouldn't be dead um, um but it's certainly um 
it's certainly not the focus of archaeology anymore. Um, and in many respects, I think um, it may have to start being the focus of archaeology as we move towards climate change research and focusing on sites that are impacted by climate change. The listener may may listen to Matt and hear him as mild mannered, but he is shaking his fist with rage right now in the camera. That uh, <laughs> uh, much as he was at the uh, uh, at the podium in Member Two back in May. So yeah, in, in Member Two, he kept saying he was pointing his finger at us, but he never said what finger it was. Uh... Yeah, I, I, yeah, he used some inflammatory language there, but uh, you know, I was pointing our finger at, at, at everybody in the audience because you know, uh, despite the fact that people sort of say, well, culture history is an outmoded theoretical and um, analytical device, um, everybody still engages with it. And they still say, well, is this piece uh, of pottery middle maritime woodland or maritime woodland? And the only reason they can do that is because previous people have engaged in culture history. And so it's 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 a, a little disingenuous to say that I don't do culture history because everybody actually does. Um, and moreover, I think it's very important for the CRM community to have this framework for uh, assessing and categorizing what they find um, um, because they don't have the time and opportunity to simply engage in um, uh, theoretical explorations of the archaeological record. Their their job is to classify and codify what they find and make it digestible for for other people. And uh, without a rigorous cult, uh, rigorous cultural history tradition, uh, how are they supposed to do their work? So, yeah, yeah and we all yeah. trained in in kind of these anthropological contexts, right? Where we're sort of that well, anthropology is supposed to be evolutionary and comparative and holistic, right? It's like well, that's is there anything more um, or anything less evolutionary, comparative and holistic than publishing a, a small journal article about, you know, the use of space in, in one tiny little part of your site and then not reporting a robust data table, you know, like that, how is that useful? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, we are all, we've all engaged in these uh, small papers that are highly theoretical. It's what we've been trained to do. It's how we got um, tenure. Yeah, so yeah, that's how we that's how we get tenure. That's how we get promoted. Um, and and in many respects, that's how we're, our success as an academic is gauged as an archaeologist. But as I said in that paper, I think that's wrong. And I think I think that we should be gauged on on how much data, not, not only on that, but how much how much how we've uh, disseminated the data that we've produced in digestible and accessible ways. Um, and I think uh, the first best destiny for all archaeologists is a site monograph or a site report, a comprehensive site report in a journal long format, um, because otherwise um, we're going to go through into a in, into a situation where the last 30 years of archaeology isn't going to really be accessible other than through field notes and uh, original um, drawings and, and, and those sorts of things. And honestly, um, they, those should be interpreted secondhand. They should be interpreted by the person who was there and saw the excavations. Um, and so, yeah, I feel very strongly about this. And um, um, there was no way I was never going to publish a site monograph on Port Jolie. And as you know, I gave up publishing other papers just to get that out because I felt that that was the most important result um, because now the community can go to it. They can see every artifact we found. They can look, read about every site that was there and they can use that data to write their own histories if if I hadn't engaged in doing that, um, I would have several highly theoretical papers in journals, hopefully, um, but that would not be consumable by by the the normal 
person that's not a specialist archaeologist. It also serves as like the backbone of a bunch of papers that you've done since then too, right? Like that's the important part is it's not just a standalone piece. Like it is integral to understanding a bunch of other pieces that have come out afterwards. Yes, absolutely. And and, and Gabe's work too. I mean, uh, his, his master's and PhD was focused on, on those sites and he wrote the architecture chapter in that volume. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 um, it's something that um, not only people that were there digging can build on, but other people in 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 the province can build on as well. And um, yeah, I know that it's I, I know that it's um, probably even more popular than our textbook at the moment. So, yeah, and the listeners should really know that that Matt um, he really cut into his productivity in terms of highly theoretical articles. He only during the period he was writing the Port Jolly monograph had two papers in American Antiquity about relational ontology. So yeah, it's, uh, it was, uh, there could have been even more where that came from, listener. Yeah. So, so Matt, Matt, you touched on something there um, where it's funny because we've got a list of, of uh, uh, kind of the, uh, the big questions and we're working backwards actually on the, yeah. in the order of the list, but you touched on something that is uh, that ties into community-based archaeology and collaborative archaeology, but also culture history. Um, and in particular, the sort of need for culture history or that the work that we're going to be doing is very culture historical over the next little while. And that is threats to the archaeological record um, as a result of climate change. Um, you know, the the South Shore of Nova Scotia is at the fore of this, the work that you've done there, coastal uh, work in general. Um, and and I've talked on the show here a couple of times before about how in my own experience, even working in interior or sort of interior estuarine regions and riverine environments, um, Erosion is is occurring rapidly um, and uh, with in, with increasing severity, basically. And you guys have done some work on this. Um, so uh, you want to talk a little bit about that work, the threats to the archaeological record, and how this is going to shape um, what we can say about archaeology and what we're going to be doing in archaeology for the next few years, or what we should be doing, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 then we can get on to like providing uh, topics for for theses. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right, and uh, the work. No, uh, clinical depression is a key part of the, the yeah. master's <laughs> process. So we'll start with clinical Ang depression. Ang and we'll anxiety. Work yeah. um, but I should say that Gabe's been involved with all of this work, and he's producing his own data um, uh, in uh, in in Maine, uh, which really um, parallels the stuff we're finding on the South Shore. And essentially, what we're finding um, is that um, essentially large portions of the archaeological past at least as it relates to coastal sites, is simply gone. It's been blasted away by sea level rise and um, and storm events. And so uh, I won't get into the, the, the major data, but I'll, I'll just preface it by saying that, um, you know, uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, people were finding uh, archaic period pieces, which date to, uh, around 4,000, 4,500 years ago on the, the coast in Nova Scotia. Um, when we started doing our coastal erosion work in the, uh, in the late teens, um, uh, we couldn't find any site that dated before about 1,500 years ago. And so that means in the last, the, in, in the span of my life, since I was born in 1974, um, those sites have disappeared, which is a result of 2,500 years of loss uh, in the archaeological record that we can't access anymore. Um, and, and part of the um, uh, blame for that lies on archaeologists who haven't been doing archaeological work uh, in these regions. Um, and, um, and so for the archaeological, uh, the indigenous communities we work for, or we work with, 
um, that's a substantial portion of uh, uh, evidence of recurring uh, use of land and resources that's been lost to them. Um, uh, and, and a significant portion of their own history. Uh, so, you know, if you're trying to reconnect with your past, trying to understand that past or your ancestors' lifeways on the, on the coast, uh, and you realize that, like, vast portions of that are no longer accessible because of climate change, um, that's a hard pill for, for many Indigenous people to have to have to take. And, um, and so um, what we're, what we're dis discovering is that, um, you know, uh, all this coastal archaeological work that we're doing is essentially every bit of it is going to be rescue archaeology because all these sites are impacted. Almost a hundred percent of them are impacted. Something like I think what I think the, the stats is like ninety percent, ninety-two percent, or something like that, right? Right, Gabe? Yeah, it's something like that, and that's actually counting. I think those those two kind of they're not really coastal sites from the South Shore, right? They're they're yeah. in unique in, in unique kind of preserved locations. They're sort of technically it, coastal sites. inland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah. and so. What that means is that if you're trying to engage in doing any coastal archaeology at all, you're engaged in mitigation, essentially. That is choosing what sites and where to put your resources to explore the past. Um, and that changes the nature of the archaeological enterprise, um, and uh, especially if you're working with communities, because you, the archaeologists shouldn't be deciding uh, by themselves what portions of the past to preserve. And that's the, that's essentially what decisions you're making if you work on the coast now. And so that all has to be done through community archaeology. And the communities have to be completely engaged and at the forefront of making the decisions about what sites you're going to explore, because that's the history that you're going to save. And so uh, there's limited resources. Everybody, everybody has to work within a budget. Uh, we can't save every site. Um, we can't explore every site. And so archaeologists have to realize that um, the questions they want answered may not be the questions um, and histories that the communities want preserve, preserved. And so um, um, we have to uh, answer answer that and, and work with the communities to preserve the histories that they need for their own social and cultural programs and 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 um, and sort of future projects, and so that's um that changes the nature of the archaeological uh, um, discipline in a way, uh, because um, if you're if you're going to be engaged in, in really and 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 Ken, you're right. It's not just the coastlines; it's it's the interior watersheds. Um, all of these places are being impacted by climate change, forest fires. I mean, Nova Scotia had record-breaking forest fires recently. Um, all of those things denude and degrade archaeological resources. And so we're at a race against time. Um, and it, that really is going to change the way we do archaeology. It, it's uh, where we put our resources is really where the community wants us to put our resources and it will accept it for us to put our resources. Um, and um, what we find is going to be completely uh, completely impacted by what's left. Um, and so that's like I, I guess I should say that leads us to the big questions. Some of these questions may be very difficult to answer now. Yeah, yeah. Like there's going to be this sort of um, like we in a in a region where you don't have this sort of complete culture historical picture, you also are going to have inherent bias in the archaeological record by the sites that are naturally preserved in more stable locations, for example, right? And so it it changes our archaeological understanding of the past. Um, because the in in some cases the only places that are remaining for us to even have a chance to mitigate or or to recover any part of are in more protected locations and things like that where you know when we know people were living in other types of locations and and those are ultimately lost right and so we have this there's a 
moving forward, there's going to be this inherent bias in the types of data that we recover from an archaeological perspective too, right? So we're getting to the, the point where archaeologists spent a long time building a restaurant, you know, where they said, well, this is, this is archaeological research. And then they said, first agents should come in and then you should order. But no, there, there isn't a menu. We just have a <laughs> restaurant, right? We, yeah. can't, we can't give you a list of the kinds of sites that we have. We can show you um, we've got deep shell bearing sites and we've got sites that we happen to run into with development. Um, yep. We don't have a, a, a range of sites for you to select among to answer your, your research questions. Absolutely. Yes, and so that doesn't only change uh, the type of questions we can answer now, but it also changes our relationship with legacy data that was produced in the past, and and also our relationship with with people like collectors uh, and and um, those sorts of people. That whereas before we might have considered that data uh, not really worthwhile or not really useful because it was collected in in quote unquote unscientific ways or in ways that don't match our modern sort of standards. But really, uh, for many portions of the archaeological past in the Maritimes, that's the only data that's left. And so developing relationships with collectors who still remember the context where they found things, um, sort of reinterpreting um, uh, legacy data by naturalists and sort of untrained early archaeologists, um, sort of piecing that all together is going to become increasingly important. And the techniques we use to sort of uh, understand and sort of uh, interpret these sort of uh, unprofessionally collected assemblages is going to become increasingly more important, especially in the Maritimes. And so, Matt, one of the uh, could you tell the listener just a little bit about sort of how you approached legacy collections? I think that would be maybe really interesting for a, like a student who's interested in how to approach this. Well, um, my approach was uh, to be befriend and um, 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 like interact with collectors. Um, uh, I uh, in my in my experience, collectors aren't there necessarily to do nefarious things. Uh, they are there because they're seeing things eroding on the uh, uh, coastline. Uh, they have a, a natural interest in in, uh, in in the history of the region, and in some in some respects, they're filling gaps left by archaeologists who came in and stirred up all this interest. In some instances, even hired and trained some of the collectors um, and then left and didn't come back. And so uh, what we found, uh, Gabe, when we worked on the South Shore, was that working with collectors um, uh, and and I mean, in some respects, we, we had these events. We called them archaeology show and learners. We wanted to know what they were finding. And we said, uh, and so we would set up this event, say, bring us your stuff. Uh, uh, we'll tell you what it is, how old it is, uh, and uh, what it potentially means for the past. And all you have to do is tell us where you found it. We took some photographs and we learned more uh, about the coastal archaeology of Nova Scotia in those two events that we had than we ever could by three years of survey. Um, um, and and quite honestly, sort of like I, I wished in, in many respects we hadn't gone out and walked all those coastlines. We could have learned more about the archaeology region just by hanging out the local IGA parking lot and asking people <laughs> if they'd found anything. Yeah, um, I was going to say that the, the we the uh, in Maine and, and the project you're on now, the only site that we on that project have actually added to the site register, um, we didn't find in survey. It was reported by a local responsible collector. Exactly. And these people, uh, and not not only the collectors, the residents of the area came by too. They're finding stuff in their front lawns and 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 uh, and the uh, waterside um, um, properties. Uh, and so integrating with communities uh, who are interested in this, uh, it can only lead to good things and it will save a lot of time in the ground. 
Yeah, so, so that's good so news, dude. That, just hang out at the marine hardware store and you're gonna be you're gonna be absolutely good. Yep. yeah, less boot leather. And, and so this is actually kind of for both of you. Um uh like you know, I've 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 worked with collectors um in the area where I work with. Uh, there's a, a a collector who has a pretty incredible collection that uh, she's been willing to share with me and um uh and kind of gives me a glimpse into what's going on in around the Washington Oak Lake area. But how do you guys navigate the sort of complex political and, and regulatory um uh sort of managing of of collectors and and uh the work that they and the things that they do um uh, and and I think it'll be informative for the lister to get a perspective from how it's managed in Maine versus how it's managed in in Canada and in, and I guess Matt from your for your experience from in Nova Scotia like how how that was perceived from a sort of a regulatory and and sort of legalist uh, legal point of view that uh you know how their activities are viewed and how engaging with archaeologists is, is treated um, and how indigenous communities feel about that too, actually, for that matter. Uh, well, from my experience, Canadian First Nation was all for it. And um, to be honest, the Nova Scotia Museum was uh, involved in both of our collector events. Um, um, now, it technically is illegal to collect from archaeological sites and disturb archaeological sites. Um, but most of the collectors we met um, weren't actively engaged in it. These are things they had done decades ago or collected decades ago. Um, but but honestly, we treat this as a as a chance to educate the collectors uh, if they uh, to tell them about what the regulations are, to encourage them to donate their collections to local museums or to the the Nova Scotia Museum. Um, and honestly, uh, we we didn't encounter any active looting except for at one site. Um, which we which we disclosed to the Nova Scotia Museum, um, and uh, they they took steps to protect it. But um, um, to be honest, I don't think looting is or collecting is a major problem on the South Shore of Nova Scotia. Um, it happens, um, but um, to be honest, um, most of it is curious um, property owners. The major collectors are now in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and um, um, really all we can do is learn from those individuals who, who started their collections at a time before regulations even existed. So if, from my perspective, um, befriending these people and uh, provides an opportunity for education and can only lead to sort of better, uh, better practices in the future. And so you wouldn't, uh, to, to ask sort of a follow-up leading question, uh, uh, you wouldn't see heavy-handed regulation in the treatment of collectors as being advantageous for anybody? I mean, the, the laws are there for a reason. Um, um, and, and, you know, it's something we want to discourage. But um, from my perspective, uh, at least in Nova Scotia, I've found all of the collectors are really only interested in that they're, they're somewhat ignorant of the laws. Uh, they're really only interested in the history of their location, uh, the, where they live. Um, and they're more than happy to sort of disclose to anybody who asks what they found. They're not trying to hide it. Um, exactly. The vast majority, I mean, there's a few that we know of that are, aren't interested in talking um, and would, we would love to talk with. Um, but um, um, from my perspective, it, there was no, it, you know, the, and the Nova Scotia Museum was all on board with all of this. They were very happy. So uh, I don't see a heavy handed um, approach being productive or even necessary or even uh, it's not something that's not something the Nova Scotia government's interested in. Um, uh, they're working with and uh, with collectors to to really just try to understand what's what's being impacted and what's what's there. Great. And I think one of the um, or the the nice things about working in Maine, too, is in Maine in particular, I guess, is that there are actually some sort of formal structures that bring avocational archaeologists and 
um, professional archaeologists together. Like, the, you know, we'll be going to the main archaeologist society meeting on the 15th. And one of the great things about that is it's an opportunity for um, often, you know, extremely knowledgeable educational archaeologists or collectors to interact with professionals, share that sort of information. And in, in Maine, um, I, I think probably on, on the sort of gradation of, of regulatory strictness, right? New Brunswick's way more strict. Ken, and you can probably speak to this in a minute. Uh, New Brunswick's very strict. Nova Scotia's sort of in between. And then Maine um, shifts to, to um, Wild West kind of American legislation, right? Where um, it's governed by basically private property law. And so uh, one of the things that I think we need to think about is just like Matt was saying, um, what are collectors trying to do? And I think when we think about Nova Scotia, Matt, one of the things that um, at least my experience was out there was there was really a vacuum after mm -hmm. John Erskine, right? And exactly. So, uh, following John Erskine, you know, in, in the 1960s, and, and he's sort of ironically, even though he's being paid to be an archaeologist, he's not trained in a particularly formal way to be an archaeologist. Um, people are are curious, right? Um, and, and not only are they curious, they're um, a lot of this stuff is eroding out, right? And if they don't pick it up, no one's going to um to ever know about it. So you've got this this kind of I think a responsible collector, right, who picks this stuff up and wants to share it. And I think that's the vast majority of collectors. Um you really haven't lived until you've been in a church basement in Nova Scotia and someone's brought in a plexiglass coffee table. That's with right. Their, uh, with their collection. <laughs> you know, that's a, a good experience. Um that was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty astonishing. Um and so, but I think um I think there is this kind of curiosity people have about the past. Um the other thing is just that um there are so few archaeologists, right? That yep. that most collectors are people who can walk kind of their patch every day. I mean, the Paleo Indian point, Matt, that um, we reported on um, the um, uh, Pierce Embry site. Um, That's right. Most folks probably walk their dog on that six days a week, right? That's right. And um, um, the only reason we discovered it is because we were reaching out to community members uh and citizens who had found things they found out they didn't attend our event i don't think but they found out that so. we were having an event and came to us um and we would never have known about that a very important find uh except for asking for people to come forward and um they, they can only help to, to work with collectors rather than against them um i don't see any point in being too heavy-handed with them um, um, I mean, except in the, in the most egregious cases, um, everybody I've met is willing to share, very open, very interested, uh, really just wanting to preserve what they find eroding. I don't think we even met any true diggers. They were just people that collect stuff from the beach. Yeah. yeah and I mean, it's not just, it's not just artifacts. Like I was out with a couple collectors on a boat a few years ago in the Passamaquoddy region. And we turned to the corner around an Island. And as it kind of, the beach came into view, both of them were like, Oh, Holy crap. Something's changed here. And they're like, that tree wasn't falling over the beach last time we were here. And yeah. Boys, there's gotta be a meter or so of shoreline lot lost since last summer. Right. Like they hadn't been out since the fall or something like that. And, and uh, this was in the spring and a couple of storms had ripped through and they knew right away that the, the beach had been torn apart by, by storm activity. Right. Like, and the, the, and they're probably among the only people that would be able to document that kind of change at that sort of time scale. Yeah. That's one of the things I think Alice Keller's really tapped into with this Maine Midden Minders initiative in Maine, you know, where she's got um, basically local citizen scientists reporting back about the status of eroding um, shell middens. What's been your experience on the interior, Ken, with working with collectors in New Brunswick? Um, they're, they're So the communities that live around like the Washington Oak Lake area have been really kind of excited to talk about archaeology. Um, you know, uh, 
like like Matt said, a lot of them are unaware of the regulations. We had one gentleman who was pretty unhappy that we had crossed across his beach because um, he had misinterpreted what I was doing as like geological prospection. Um, you know, the, the big concern that I had with a lot of landowners, like because, you know, I, like most of what the work I'm doing is on private land. Um, and so I have to get permission to, you know, to access their properties. And um, w the concern was that, you know, I was going to uh, like burn slant drilling, basically, right, you know, find find some kind of mineral deposit on their property and, and, uh, and, you know, set up shop for a mine. But, uh, but, you know, and then explain to them sort of what the archaeology is, why, why the lake is important, why the church source is important. You know, you learn sorts of quirky things like the uh, most locals call it the agate, like the uh, Washington <laughs> shirt. Um, but also we had, uh, we found an archaeological site on a property. Landowners came down, we talked to them. The guy was like, oh, well, my daughter and and her partner have found a bunch of stuff down here. We'll bring it in next time you're around. We got invited in for tea and had a conversation with a woman who showed us her collection of, you know, pretty rocks that, you know, among them there's artifacts. Talked to her aunt who's in her 90s who remembered um, Indigenous community members um, coming in in the summer and camping and making ash baskets on the shoreline, right? Wow. Uh, in around Bellies Cove. And then, and then you know, meet a... a a private landowner who lives on a property of a site that's been known since the 19th century and was written about by G.F. Matthew, basically. And and her and her grandfather have a collection that extends back to the 1920s from there. And cool. uh, she was able to tell me stories about how, you know, uh, the, the Boy Scouts used to come out every summer to that site with a busload of people um, and just pick the shoreline for the day and then leave. And so her, she oh. has a massive collection, a really important collection, but there are probably thousands of artifacts that are just distributed into the wind from, you know, from an activity that's never been recorded, right? Like, you know, unless you hear that from somebody, you don't know sort of what's gone on in this region. Um, and, and she has artifacts from a nearby island that are probably late maritime archaic. Um, and, and there's no late archaic presence uh, recorded in that area, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's fascinating. Um, and Off air, Ken, really we'd like to get stuff. the GPS uh, coordinates for that. What's that? Off air, we'd like to get the GPS coordinates for that for <laughs> yeah. upcoming shirk proposal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> the um. So actually, so I mean, since since we're talking about the late archaic, I mean that's um undoubtedly a big question uh, in regional archaeology. I think. Uh, would you guys like to tackle that one? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean it's one of the biggest. It's um um and so we're, what we're talking about are are potentially two different groups, um sort of coming into contact the 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 late maritime archaic what we call in the book the late maritime archaic and then the the Susquehanna incursion if you want to call it that and so the relationship between like wh why the demise of the late archaic uh, late maritime archaic across the Atlantic provinces all at the same time is one of the biggest questions that remains. Um, and uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm very, very interested in is so it, it, they don't just disappear here in the Atlantic provinces um, or sorry, the, in, in the maritime provinces in Maine, they also disappear throughout Labrador and Newfoundland at the same time. Um, so is that related to climate change? Uh, is that related to uh, sea level rise? Is it related to uh, the incursion of new peoples um, or is it some sort of societal collapse, um, uh, just a sort of natural sort of uh, uh, bust episode after a boom and bust cycle? Um, it's probably related to all of those things. It's a very complex, but but how that occurred and why it occurred in such a vast region 
is one of the big uh, un, unexplored questions um, in the region. Um, um, and uh, I guess that the corollary to that is what were the actual relationships um, across the Gulf of St. Lawrence during that time? Uh, we speculate in the book that we think that these are the same people just vastly distributed across the landscape, uh, not unlike the the Paleo Inuit or or the uh, uh, Thule Inuit, uh, but that has yet to be tested. Um, and, and, that, and this is a this is a hypothesis, of course, that Jim Tuck um, 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 had um, many decades ago, um, which we've sort of resurrected in the book, um, and which we know that uh, some uh, main archaeologists don't agree with. But um, I think it's um, we'll uh, very important. We'll give the password to our inboxes here. Uh, <laughs> we'll put those in the show notes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, so so the late archaic, sort of understanding the late maritime archaic and the cultural and uh, the cultural, economic, social, and environmental dynamics that occurred around there is a very, very, very important question. And it's, to me, it's one of the most important and most interesting questions left to understand in North America. I mean, these people were distributed uh, across uh, uh, tens of thousands of kilometers uh, uh, from Maine to the northern tip of Labrador, highly successful, um, elaborate material culture, and then just disappeared. Um, And why that occurred um, is, and, and it seems like genetically, they disappeared as well, if you believe the DNA evidence. So, so how well, we, we should say we see substantial cultural throughput in, uh, in you know, for instance, shark teeth, right? Yeah, there is, there yeah, is yeah. some 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 cultural throughput as well. Um, uh, uh, but but culturally they disappear, and genetically yeah. it seems like they disappear as well. And that's yeah, a really important happened. question. Yeah. yeah, something something major happened, and um, um, and the vacuum that occurred when they disappeared. Uh, what the, what did that mean for both the 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 terminal archaic Susquehanna that came in, and of course the early early woodland peoples that came in after that? Uh, how does that that's a very important question. Matt, you may recall that I think Betson Reinick uh, proposed that we were going to call it the transitional archaic now. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, trans, yeah. transition. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's, it's 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 hard to come. Up, it's hard to maintain these new cultural historical terms. You know. I know it is. Yeah, yeah. I have my book open in front of me. The, yeah. Uh, and I've got the, the chart, the chart that Ken did, where he collated all the different phrases people had for for the early woodland as well. Yeah, what's but, that? You're like actually the, right. the one in our book. We shouldn't call oh. it terminal because transitional probably more more realistic for what actually occurred yeah we so we, you know we're not positing kind of a you know complete deep up but but some some sort of big population collapse major culture change and then i mean it seems like a kind of classic archaeological migration event of some kind occurs in the region yeah, yeah. And, and what's and fascinating oh go ahead i think Ken. that's one of the most fascinating things it's it is it is really sort of this great example of like a, a kind of a true example of an archaeological migration like it really does look like a people that you can see moving up through the eastern seaboard into into the maritimes right absolutely but you also get that at the northern end right in labrador mm-hmm. you get paleo inuit moving down and so yeah. uh, they're squeezed at both ends um and and that contact can't have been trivial um uh it seems like it uh, especially in labrador it seems like it, there was there was real competition for resources um and um uh i suspect it led to uh, uh it was an important component in the the sort of the cultural collapse which occurred then if you want to call it that so matt if um you're an arctic guy if, if the listener is is bailing what we're mowing here so to speak um over the if if 
late maritime archaic sort of fluorescence is all the way from you know somewhere in Maine all the way up to Newfoundland and Labrador. How does that kind of compare to other hunter gatherer, big hunter gatherer cultures? Um, that's a that's a very interesting question, and um, it's very interesting because elsewhere um, these people just continue to develop, but it seems like um, in in the Atlantic provinces, we have these boom and bust cycles, um, which uh, which don't occur not, they occur not only in the archaic but in the woodland as well. And so we get these sort of population ebbs and flows, and 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 uh, evidences of complexity building and then waning again. Um, and so why does that occur uh, throughout the Atlantic provinces on these these cycles? Um, is it what's really interesting to me is so say for example on the west coast um we have this this massive barrier the the, the rockies that sort of isolates that that section of the of the of the continent uh and to develop kind of on its own um with 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 more limited they did certainly did have vast connections but more limited but in the in in the in the Atlantic provinces they have sort of unfettered access to all of the groups in the cent in the central proportion of Americas the, through the Mississippi, uh, down through the Mississippi Valley and Great Lakes. So, what did sort of knowledge of those peoples and contact with those peoples mean for people on the East Coast, especially uh, that has to do with um, you know incipient people that are, are looking to sort of aggrandize or become uh, big men or 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 for lack of a better term chiefs um, how how did that sort of circumscribe their ability to claim sort of authority when you're aware of groups in in the West that are larger more powerful living in major cities um, uh, for lack of a better terms well they were cities. Um, how so the the questions um, that we're dealing with here are somewhat different because uh, of these vast interconnections that occur um, all throughout the Northeast, um, yeah. and so you know these boom and bust cycles aren't can't just be the result of hunter gatherers sort of isolated um, interacting with their environment. It's hunter gatherers interacting with their environment and every other hunter-gatherer that they're sort of cheek by jowl with in the Northeast. Um, so we get into things like the, the Proto-Algonquin expansion. Uh, what did that have to do with, with uh, societal development in the, in the East Coast? Uh, the Susquehanna incursion, the, the Paleo-Inuit incursion, uh, all of these things are, are sort of vastly different than sort of what occurred in other regions of North America. And so for me, it's it's not really comparable and it's it's vastly interesting. It's immensely interesting. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things you guys do really well in the book is, is uh, um, and that you both sort of argued for, is this um, pushback, like this sort of agency that you can see in the archaeological record of groups sort of pushing back against um, this, you know, sort of bigger, these bigger movements, uh, you know, there almost seems to be like a, a boiling point when when the, uh, the the boom and bust cycle seems to be it's it, it, you know is it is it an internal thing that groups are pushing back against somebody maybe accumulating too much of power right like that there you know that there's not any room for somebody to aggrandize or sort of accumulate that that sort of um uh, that's kind of inegalitarian hierarchical structure that you might see uh, forming elsewhere um and and you know it plays out in different ways too like we always talk about how you know the wabanaki sort of eschewed sort of this maze horticultural 
um, uh, a mode that was going on in the late woodland. Um, and that's a conscious choice, right? And and so these are, you guys have approached it as a way that these are, you know, this isn't all sort of driven by environmental change, but there's a whole bunch of things going on. And one of them looks to be some kind of, um, um, you're seeing decisions made by groups um, pushing back against what's, el- what's happening elsewhere, basically. I think one of the things that Matt uh, actually made me think about was, and, and to sort of frame this as I, I spend part of the time as a listener will know when I introduced the show in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And one of the things in Manchester, New Hampshire is that they, um, it's about 50 uh, miles. That's a million kilometers from Boston. And so, um, and it's, but it's a big city. It's the biggest city in Northern New England, Manchester is. Um, but it has its St. Patrick's Day every year, one week after St. Patrick's Day, because they don't want to compete with Boston. And so the, the premise is we're still, we're in this like interaction sphere kind of with Boston, right? Where we, we just, we'll have our St. Patrick's Day late. It's okay. And, but in like very much the same way, I remember Matt saying once, you know, when we were um, on the South Shore, or I, I think it might've been actually after we visited the Gasparo Lake site, Matt, when they were excavating there. Um, and there were all of these lithic materials that are clearly not local, right? They're from far away. You know, I don't know what Cahokia's lithics look like, but maybe they're Cahokia's lithics, you know, something right, like right. that. It's like, well, surely, you know, somebody at Port Jolly, I mean, they maybe never went to Cahokia themselves, but they might have. Um, but they probably knew someone who'd been to Cahokia, or at least they knew someone who knew someone who'd been to Cahokia, right? Mm-hmm. Is this idea of like, no, you know, we're going to have our St. Patrick's Day a week late <laughs> because we're we're not the big city, right? Um, and so we've got this kind of, and and then you have to add to that though that Cahokia is probably also a religious center. Um, it's it's this source of um, of of we know. I mean, you know, it's it's a big enough city center that's got suburbs, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. And for this the idea of Cahokia, kind of Cahokia is the largest pre-Columbian city in North America that was was occupied probably from about as early as about 800 AD, AD to about 1400 or so. 1450, I think, around uh, AD. Is that if I got the dates correct? Something but, uh, like that. And what's, and what's the some stat? estimates? Did... Some estimates were like around 30 or 40,000 people living in Cahokia itself at one time. Um, but it also had all of it was sort of the, the center of a series of city states um, spread throughout. Um, uh, so Cahokia is in, in basically in present day St. Louis, Missouri, um, or across the river, I guess, from St. Louis. It's in East St. Louis, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think East like, St. Louis was nicer when Cahokia was there, but they yeah yeah yeah, um, uh, but 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 yeah. So getting back to I'll I'll throw it back to Gabe here, but but uh, just to co- provide some context about what Cahokia is. Well, no, I, I mean that's exactly right, and um, and and but I but I just I think it's sort of interesting to think about. And what's the can are you teaching intro? They it's a statistic um, in North American archaeology where they're always like, you know, not until Philadelphia in. 17 something was there a bigger city in north america i can't never remember the, the statistic oh I, exactly you know i don't teach that but i should uh i should incorporate that to, to yeah give it that lasting effect usually when you tell them like thirty thousand people their their eyes can open up you know yeah i mean in fredericton people think oh that's a that's a city yeah it's, it's like it's like saint john <laughs> yeah and and but you're, you're absolutely right. what's the effect if you know of this place and have heard of the ruler uh, and rulers who live there with sort of infinite wealth and power um, as a special spiritual authority. And so, you know, if you believe um, in in uh, the idea that sort of, sort of incipient aggrandizers 
uh, gain authority through sort of spiritual power or so the 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 concept of of holding spiritual power uh which may which is one of the concepts that that sort of bandied about for this the rise of aggrandizers how how would an incipient grandizer claim to have uh, any authority that could even touch the power of these people in Cahokia? And so the knowledge of that center, um, we, we I think we call it social eclipsing or spiritual eclipsing um, uh, in the book, um, but we really haven't studied it in great detail. But there must have been some effect for people living uh, on the East Coast, uh, knowing about these very powerful rulers and leaders um, so far to the West, uh, who they they may have even known the names of, um, at least during Hopewell times, we know that there was communication with places like Port Jolie because we have an iron an Hopewellian iron bead from Port Jolie. So we know that these uh, um, um, there was contact at least through down the line trade. Um, and certainly um, we know that there were sort of uh, potentially, or at least it's been hypothesized, Cahokia prophetizers that went out from the Cahokia and tried to sort of create connections uh, in places like Florida and, and um, um, uh, Georgia. Uh, and so what's to say they didn't do the same further north um, on, the, in, on the East Coast? I, I think so too. It, Matt, you got to describe the bead. It's like a rule on this podcast that if you mention a really cool artifact, you have to try to describe it. <laughs> yeah, no so, visuals. So you're you're going to be flying blind here. Oh, okay. So we found a small corroded uh, circular sort of tubular object, which was highly corroded. When we got it in the lab, we, we delicately cleaned it. And at first we thought it was copper because copper is quite common uh, in Atlantic, in the Atlantic provinces, um, and, uh, copper beads are somewhat com common as well. They're usually rolled cold hammered copper, but this one, um, was magnetic. And so when we looked at it, um, it was very, very, uh, magnetic, obviously made out of iron, uh, very difficult to produce. It's not common, uh, in the Atlantic provinces at all. And the only place we know of that made similar, um, Similar rolled copper, uh, rolled iron beads at the same time was in Hopewell communities, um, um, and they use primarily meteoric iron. Um, but we haven't had it, we haven't had it uh, uh, XRF or tested for that yet. Um, and the, so it's and the listener what? like the Hopewell homeland is sort of in the Ohio River Valley, so like contemporary like um, I, I I don't know my American geography. Help me out here, Gabe. Like West Virginia, West Virginia, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we know that there was sort of communication between these sort of uh, centers. Um, and um, yeah, but not only that, I mean, uh, we know that there was sort of and, and that's one of the big unanswered questions or what was the nature of these uh, exchange routes? Uh, what was the nature of the interaction? Um, one of the really interesting things we found in Portugal was in a context that was dated to about 950 years ago or so um, a house floor. And I Ken, I think you actually found this. It was it was a charred butternut. It was a piece of charcoal. I think you found it. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it looked it looked like just a big piece of charcoal. Uh, but when we cleaned it up, it was a charred butternut, and it was identified by Michael Deal in his in his, in his lab at Memorial University. Dates to about 950 years ago. And guess where else you find charred butternuts 950 years ago? If this were the Oak Island show, we'd be about to invoke Norse. <laughs> we are, because that, that, that's where they were found, in um, um, Lansom Meadows, at the Viking settlement in Lansom Meadows, the Norse settlement in Lansom Meadows. Um, um, and what's really interesting about butternuts is, uh, at the time, they only grew south of the St. John River. Um, we know that they were traded. Um, so 
uh, Port Jolie was part of the same trade network that the Norse were part of a thousand years ago, which is pretty incredible. So did they did they know about the Norse? They traded with people who clearly traded with the Norse. Um, and um, that's a pretty incredible thing. They heard about these sort of crazy people wearing iron chain mail and big, big swords and uh, with, with crazy boats. Uh, that's kind of a uh, really important thing. Um, sending pennies to Maine for no apparent send, reason. Yes, yeah, sending pennies <laughs> to Maine uh, and sending Ramat shirt to Maine. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's evidence of Ramat shirt all the way from Ramat Bay in northern Labrador. Um, it seems like it occurs in Maine more than anywhere else in the and the and the uh, sampling bias. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, but that that's a and you know potentially that trade network existed in in Paleo uh, Indian times, uh, um, Paleo American times, and um, like how did that even occur? Because we the expectation is most of the Labrador course was still glaciated at the time. Um, so understanding that these Henley Point in Vermont that that. Probably Paleo Indian um, uh, Rama Point. Uh, I can't remember where in Vermont, but somewhere in Vermont, right? That's right. And it, yeah. there's Ra- there's Rama in um, others in the Rama and Paleo Indian sites in Maine. No, I, I the Vermont one's the only one I can remember. And okay, I, I could is be. it by the woodland? It's as far south as the Chesapeake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, but yeah. but it certainly it certainly exists in um, maritime archaic sites in, in Maine. Yeah, and and so this is this is a vast sort of. Um, trade network. We're talking thousands and thousands of kilometers. And uh, so, what were the connections there? Uh, was it all just maritime archaic people? That was there a middle person? Um, that's that's um, that's uh, these trade networks are really important. And hopefully, with the you know the XRF prices going down, we'll, we'll get a handle on some of this. Yeah, Ken's got one he can shoot from the hip, right? <laughs> I mean, you I gotta, get, I gotta get my license renewed. Renew. Actually, I'm I'm uh, I'm no longer. Uh, 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 Enarcan nuclear, whatever, what, uh, non-destructive nuclear technician or something. I can't remember what the t- title <laughs> oh, was. Do you have, a, get do a, you have an XRF get, rig a new license? There? Pardon me? Do you have an XRF rig at Lethbridge? No, no, but uh, it's it's something that I, I think that would be, uh, it would make sense to get uh, just because we have departmental expertise and some other stuff that would help, it would help with, yeah. so. Yeah. Nice. Um, so one of the things that you guys have, have both talked about a little bit here is um, these kind of vast um, interaction networks. Um, and I think these vast um, exchange networks we've talked about, I, I think, you know, maybe a degree of interaction that the listener might be surprised about when they think about Indigenous North America. Uh, but one of the things that I think we're all kind of interested in um, is cross-cultural comparisons, right? So, you know, Matt, one of the things you did was you you ruled out one we've relied so heavily on, which is um, complex hunter-gatherers on the on the <laughs> northwest coast. Um, but where do you where do you all see um, kind of the value of the region we're working in, um, both for people working in other regions, right? Like what what comparisons might they find that we have, um, and then what um, what do you guys turn to when you're thinking through problems in your own research for cross cultural comparison? Uh, I can start with that. Um, I, I believe that my training in the Arctic um, has really helped me sort of um, understand the archaeological record better here. Um, for example, um, the Thule Inuit and the Paleo Inuit before them um, were connected across vast regions. We're talking from uh, the Western Arctic near the Mackenzie River all the way to the northern tip of Newfoundland. Um, and Labrador, um, but yet still the same cultural group, 
uh, perhaps with some regional differences, uh, but really still considered to be uh, one people, uh, the ancestors of the Inuit. And so I, you know, understanding um, the potential scope and distribution of some of these groups um, really changed my idea of, uh, and, and perhaps it, I, I never had an idea, I came here sort of new, um, but I really sort of transplanted that concept um, onto the uh maritime provinces in the Atlantic province in the Atlantic Northeast when I started working. Uh, so much so that, I mean, even in the book, we hypothesize that um, uh, what people used to call the intermediate period in Newfoundland should really be called the boreal woodland because it's it's really a, a northern expression of uh, the maritime woodland period, whereas the maritime woodland period, we hypothesize, is, is just uh, the woodland sort of um, without maize horticulture um um the the um the boreal woodland would be the same but without without majority without ceramics although there have been some ceramics found now um but with a greater emphasis on seals um and and so you know we see these sort of connections and sort of regionality um but what we, what i really think is that these people were were connected in a much greater degree and i think that comes from my my training in the arctic where where you know, we have these vast territories that are essentially occupied by people who probably spoke different dialects, but sort of mutually intelligible languages, shared material culture across vast, vast time and space. Um, and really their ways of life were, were comparable and similar uh, through even different vast ecological differences. And, and importance of watercraft, too, I think, maybe to link together those areas, right? Absolutely. And of course, you know, watercraft is was very highly developed on the on the in the Atlantic Northeast. So Yeah. So Ken is kind of uh, Mr. Canoe out here, right? Because you've got uh you've got portages or that's a portage for our American listener. Uh and what what do you think about this, Ken? What what where are you what's your in your kind of ethnographic quiver that you're always going to? Uh I mean, like I to tell you the truth, I I mean I don't really do a ton of that stuff. I I you know, like the the um, I draw on, I, I think because I use mostly lithic data, it's really kind of challenging to um, like parse out a really kind of clear picture of sort of this cross-cultural comparison. But I think like one of the ways that we think about these are sort of the, um, that I've engaged with when you're thinking about, you know, canoes or movement of people is is kind of mobility and settlement patterning. And so kind of drawing on this like, Binfordian notion of of how you know we envision people moving around the landscape and the kind of things that they're doing and and uh, you know I think I, I remember a moment in my master's defense where I had a the external uh, reader kind of pointed out where I I kind of who who was the I, external are we allowed to say oh um, he was from history and uh, okay. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue actually sure. yeah. yeah. Um, the, the listener this was like 11 years ago uh so i i but There's uh a lot of but I, I, but I remember the, here and then I, I remember the moment fairly well because it kind of like like uh froze me uh but uh he picked up on that i kind of i i talked a little bit about you know um how i was trying to classify the sort of um um expedient versus curated technologies and trying to classify groups as either a forager or a collector model right and and kind of fitting within these sort of what we you know what are really sort of idealized conceptions of how we view hunter gatherers in the archaeological record can you, and, can you and, say what that means for the listener ken 
So, so, uh, so a classic model of a forager is a group that is um, highly residentially mobile. So they move around uh, to different base camps throughout the year. Um, uh, they, they would be expected to have um, more, uh, 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 more expedient toolkit because they're moving more frequently. They, and they have more predictable resources that, uh, that they can access at all times. Whereas a, um, a collector would be, um, uh, you would expect to see more curated technologies. And so that they are kind of preparing for shortages, they cache stuff, they store things, that kind of behavior. Right. And so what the lithic data from, you know, the areas where I was working was it kind of made a confusing it made it very confusing because I, first of all, I was working on sites that I had no dates for. So I didn't, wasn't really sure if they were, you know, 500 years apart or 2000 years apart. Well, you did have um, a date. Just one of them was almost I, certainly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And one of them was, one of them was post-contact and I was trying to figure out what was going on the late woodland. And this was very, very confusing, but, but what it came down to is that the lithic data kind of told you multiple stories, right. And what it uh, suggested is that these models that we use, these cross-cultural comparisons that Benford kind of based this on that, that, um, these are really challenging um, without a robust data set to engage with and that um, th that they're kind of idealized conceptions of how people behaved and that, um, you know, as I learn more about um, Wabanaki and particularly uh, Wolostegwe, um lithic sort of uh, strategies, uh, they're highly flexible um, and and really changing, uh, really, really adaptable and that, that, that they are um, within a site you might see more than one. Uh, they're not always uh, using bifacial technology. They're using bifacial and bipolar technologies at the same time. They're making um, blades uh, at a site where they're also making, uh, so they're using prepared blade cores, but we're not seeing any blade cores. So where are the blades coming from? Um, and then making formalized lanceolate points, right? Um, and uh, on, on, and, and flake technology that's aimed at scrapers. And so there's all sorts of, there's a whole diversity of lithic strategies that are going on that um, aren't captured in these sort of idealized models of what we would expect hunter gatherers to do with their stones, essentially. Well, that's a very good point, Ken. And um, it's something that, that to me is much more prominent in the archeological record of the Atlantic Northeast, um, that there, there seems to be this, um, you, you mentioned flexibility. Um, and Gabe, maybe you want to talk about the paper that you and I were working on that, that we just published. You, you were the lead on it. Maybe you want to talk about that because it it, it, it really ties into what what Ken was talking about. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that, Matt. As you guys were talking, I actually just uh, made a note on my on my uh, outline here. I'm just at the phrase, uh, expect hunter-gatherers to do, which is what Ken said. And so one of the things that we talked about in that paper we just had out in JAA was um, in the 1970s, I think, um, there was that volume, the Nash volume that tried to compare the Northwest Coast and the East Coast. And the, the kind of central question was that in the Northwest Coast, um, what archaeologists call complexity developed, right? Where there's basically a bunch of moving political parts, there's sedentism, there's big plank houses, um, there's storage, there is um, the kind of trappings of inequality, right? Of wealth accumulation, all these kinds of things. Um, More fair. Warfare, right? Um, you know, even even people holding slaves, this kind of thing. Um, and one of the things I think that people wondered justifiably was, why does this develop in the Northwest Coast, right? And and it it seemed I think at the time that the Northwest Coast example was sort of an extreme outlier, right? That um, it was kind of a, you know, like a a dot, and that there was nothing between, um, 
let's say, uh, a kind of Cree hunter-gatherer known ethnographically and a kind of Northwest Coast complex hunter-gatherer that was this this niche thing, and maybe a few other examples around the world. And David Sanger said, much like Ken said, um, that, uh, that um, I think he said, Algonquin hunter-gatherers generally behave as Algonquin hunter-gatherers are supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a line that, that we riffed on a little bit. And and what we posited in that paper, looking at the, the Woodland period, you know, the last uh, 3,000 years, was that um, basically you can think about those, about complexity as this kind of toolkit, right? And the people are drawing on different aspects of that toolkit um, in, a, in a way that's not exactly adaptive, that, but that reflects certain conditions, certain historical um, kind of tools that people have, right? So... Um, among the things we talk about, and so we give all these examples, right? We sort of say it's. It was a fun paper to write too, because it's it's kind of nice to give shout outs to lots of obscure papers that turn out to actually be very right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And it's so you get we get to kind of do this deep literature dive and um and and uh, and cite you know a bunch of stuff and say you know well, you know for just for instance you know Jesse Webb's master's thesis right looking at yeah. um, a fish trapped. And and I I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but something like in one meter of excavation at Sam Morris Pond was it was it three thousand tomcod or something? Yeah, it had a highly specialized economy, which you wouldn't normally you wouldn't normally see in a, in a sort of what the people would call a simple hunter gatherer way of life, you know? Yeah, because you're you're obviously storing tomcod. Yeah. I mean, you know, either that or you're having you know the. <laughs> there's, there's not enough crackers and cream cheese folks to, yeah. <laughs> make, to make that okay in an evening or two you know so so there's this this all this storage there's aspect of sedentism which which we saw in port jolly right yeah um, yeah um and so kind of pulled together this data made some sense that we've got and it goes back a bit to that series of boom and bust cycles i think that you talked about right where we see these recurring that this is um a kind of known wabanaki approach to how to navigate the world right is to draw on these tools of complexity but also i think one of the points we make to draw on the tools of simplicity right is that we yes. can scale this back if we want to you know um yeah. and situate agency you know when I mean, we cite we cite ken's work for instance about the distribution of washington chert um mm. in that and how that changes and how that can be used to kind of track um interactions so um and I, but I think one of the things that that I was struck by, you know, just and also just riffing on what Kenneth just said was that, in fact, and this this is not uh, to diminish David Sanger's work. I think he was absolutely correct with the data he had at the time, but it's that Algonquin hunter gatherers actually don't behave as we would expect them to, you know. No, absolutely not. Not considering how rich the environment is. And, That's right. And, yeah. And you know, but I I, I should say that. You know, as a as a proponent of sort of like what we should call this neo culture history, is that um, what we're calling it? <laughs> yeah, maybe, I, 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 is, is, did I just coin a term? I think uh, you did. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I still think that sort of the Willie style cross cultural comparison is really uh, important in archaeology, um, especially when you're trying to understand like why here and why not there. Um, and I, I honestly think like the time is right to sort of like bring the West Coasters and the East Coasters together and say, why are the archaeological records so different uh, in these two areas? Uh, the productivity is similar. Um, uh, the, 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 the topography is perhaps a little bit different. Um, um, but but why, why do we have this sort of Northwest Coast pattern develop? Um, and uh, what seems to be uh, um, the antithesis of that in the East Coast. 
And um, that's the importance of shellfish as well, I think, which is something that that the East Coast can be a little bit slow on picking up. But I think, you know, Dave Black and Arts Peace and, and you have all kind of tipped off that, yeah, shellfish really matter. Like they're hugely absolutely. important to the diet. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy to say that shellfish is the reason why they didn't uh, adopt maize, but I think it's way more complex than that. Um, as we and as we can see in the archaeological record, I mean, sometimes we get big permanent villages and those go away. Other times we get mound building activity and, and participation in like extra regional um, uh, religious sort of uh, uh, trappings. Um, but that sort of goes away as well. Uh, there's something that's sort of putting a limit on um, this full blown um big man um, sort of chiefdoms in on the East Coast. That's not to say there weren't powerful leaders. They certainly developed after the arrival of Europeans, mm -hmm. but we just don't see the same sort of level of sedentism, the large numbers of villages, and even the population density uh, that we see in the West Coast, despite the fact that we're talking about one of the world's most productive um, marine ecosystems. And um, um, that's an important question to ask. And I think the only way you can ask it is by comparison to these other regions. Um, now, what might be really interesting is to compare this to other regions like South America, where there are huge shell um, middens and equally productive marine ecosystems. Um, and I don't think that there hasn't been very much work comparing uh, cross-culturally uh, between places like uh, Chile and here um, and sort of uh, uh, Argentina and here. But um, um, I think those sorts of questions, while they might not be de rigueur, I think it's uh, if you're committed to sort of cultural history and sort of understanding how people develop, societies develop, asking those cross-cultural questions can only lead to more insights. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're, and so Ken, on, on the interior, one of the things that you've also um, talked about is just um, you've really riffed on these exchange routes in the last, I mean, pretty much 1500 years, kind of been your emphasis, but but deeper than that too. Yeah. And just, do you want me to talk about them? Is that the... <laughs> Listener, I've just made a terrible error. I've just encouraged Ken to talk at length about a subject he's really passionate about. <laughs> this is a little too open-ended for me, Gabe. You yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, that, Matt, Matt and I will go walk to the bar, get a beer, and then we'll come back. And we'll <laughs> off here. But no, can I, I guess what I meant was more just, do you have a, a kind of, do you have thoughts on, on the complexity questions? Um, yeah, I, I mean, like... Coast Coast Lab, too. Like like looking yeah you know, I, after I, having been supervised by <laughs> by your like by Gary Copeland the yeah, Northwest Coast yeah. guy so I uh um it's funny because you know I don't I don't think I use complexity really almost at all in my thesis uh and and it's and I brought it up in um in my defense in the context of your guys recently released paper right so I finished writing and then you guys came up with a paper that would have been uh. Uh, you know, probably helped provide some some context uh, in some of what I was talking about in the late. Woodland. Well, Ken, we would have had it out earlier, but there were a series of reviews that did not go as we planned. <laughs> yeah, as yeah. the listener knows, the, the the frowny face is this the uh, that was that um, was they did get a frowny face. I I, and, I, uh, I I preferred poppycock. That was my favorite response. <laughs> yeah. uh, I like the simplicity uh, of the frowny face. <laughs> I, I think I I think I peaked. Max's interest when I when I brought up complexity uh, in this context and and in like in in particular what it um the data that I'm looking at again I'm I'm looking at patterning from one 
well, Corey or area, you know, so sort of the lower Wolostogan going out basically. Right. And, and what groups are doing close to the, the source and, and what they're doing with it away. Um, but the distribution of Washington church sort of follows um, kind of this, uh, the boom and bust cycle, um, at least within the woodland, um, it seems to correlate with um, with what we see is sort of the expansion and contraction of exchange networks throughout the region. And and in, and particular, it's it's really acute that the in the late woodland, you really do see um, it's it, it appears to be and you know, the, the stats on this, again, as, as was pointed out, my defense, the stats are a little <laughs> bit hard to parse out because it's a. Uh, uh, the the data set is is hard to compare because it's a lot of piece counts and things. Oh, I like thought that, Ted Manning but... said that the, the stats are hard to parse out because they were wrong. But the, that was that was a different. That was the paper <laughs> oh, that was already published. Oh, that was oh the, I see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, uh, well, it, it's what it looks like though is that there's not just there are not just more sites um, uh, that have Washington Oak Church in the late woodland. There is more material circulating in the late woodland. Right, you have a. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's and it's circulating at a greater distance from the source, right? Which suggests that Washtomo chert is representative of what we see with other materials, with uh, cherts from Nova Scotia, with cherts from the northern part of Maine and Monsungan Lake. That you know, there's this massive expansion of of uh, trade networks, and and you have sort of this. Um, uh, what was the the uh, uh, Drew Gilbert and and Dave Black and a, and a few other folks put together these posters, the usual suspects yeah, of, yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Quaddy region toolstone, but I mean, in general, like uh, maritime woodland toolstone, you see sort of one of everything at all a lot of these sites, right? And so, you know, there's a site in the a late, late woodland or proto-contact site in the lower Wolostog that has uh, one piece of Rama chert. So most sites have one piece of Rama chert. Most of the sites I looked at had at least one piece of Rama, one piece of Monsungan, uh, one piece of Washtenaw chert, and one piece of Minus Basin chert. And and many of these you can track hundreds of kilometers away from the source. And that, the, you know, I think that these are trade networks predicated on close relationships between Wabanaki, between and among Wabanaki groups. I think a lot of this is highly mobile people traveling on in watercraft um, through, you know, uh, uh, Sue has that, Sue Blair has this great figure in her dissertation that kind of shows um, these, these lithic and, and water networks in this sort of grid system and how, you know, uh, between watersheds, there are major portage routes that we know about. And so people were intensively in, integrated through um, being highly mobile and and probably knowing each other and communicating with one another. Um, and, you know, you can see that changing and and really intensifying in the late woodland. Right. And, and that, um, you know, there's, there's not, there's not a real robust data set uh, in the, in the post-contact period um, because I, I have really poor chronological resolution for the stuff that I'm looking at. Um, but there are indications that at least to a certain extent um, uh, there, the, those, connections persist to a certain degree, right? Um, uh, at least, you know, up until probably the, the you know, talking like the the 17 or 1800s kind of thing. So, but, but one connection that we haven't maybe talked about, and uh, and I'm bringing this up now because I'm, I'm looking at our list and and uh, Matt is drinking a, what I believe is called a, an Ottawa Libre. It's a Diet Coke and Covassier. Is that what? So that what I was going to comment. I was going to comment on this. I a class so that I would be more, because uh, I knew the company I was keeping. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't being uh, well, gauche. I, I, I wanted to, what, I wanted to tell the, plant. 
I, I wanted to tell the listener earlier that uh, that um, for the first 45 minutes we were talking, Matt kept drinking from it and it never the it was like the it was like a bottomless cup. Like it never it never went below <laughs> about two centimeters below the lip of it. Uh, and, and poor Gabe had to had to carry a Manhattan up the hill in Fredericton uh, and, and is dry as a bone right now. That's, uh... The uh... Well, the one the one thing the listener might not know is that um so so Matt we as you know we we try to talk about restaurants and 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 um, suggestions on this uh, this podcast a, oh. a bit. Um, the listener doesn't know that you're a Diet Coke super taster. Apparently, um, yeah, I can tell where it's bottled. Yeah. Um, at least at least between Ontario and Quebec. But yeah. um, um, I tell you the the most transcendent Diet Coke I ever had was uh, at the uh, uh, Halifax International Airport. Uh, um, I then I don't know where that one was bottled, but it was the, it was the Stanfield. But it was in a bottle. It was in a bottle, plastic bottle, actually. Yeah. Interesting. But I, I, I never, I didn't save it, so I can't, I can't uh, replicate it. But uh, Belizean Coca Cola is fantastic because it all comes from Mexico and it's all made from cane sugar. Yeah, Diet Coke is my uh, substance of choice, so <laughs> yeah. I, 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 no natural products are necessary. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um... But <laughs> so just so chemical think... pollutants. That's uh... <laughs> but, but, but speaking what... of types of Diet Coke, <laughs> we can move on to like I think one of the big remaining questions is, and that is like typological comparison and, and uh, classification, and that's something that really hasn't occurred very much in the Atlantic Northeast. Um, and I think specifically, uh, we, we recently had some work done by Adrian Burke, which was fantastic, which really pushed back the frontiers of what we know about um, uh, lithic uh, technologies in the region. Um, but I still think there's a lot more work left to do. And um, specifically, like uh, cross cross typological pairs across the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so, for yeah. example, all of these projectile points in the boreal woodland that we see similarities in that we raise in the book – are those really sort of woodland style uh, side notch and corner notch projectile points? Uh, what does the pottery decoration look like on those few sites that we know there are pottery in the boreal woodland? The, the boxed based point phenomenon that occurs yeah. all throughout the Atlantic provinces and yeah. uh, the Atlantic Northeast. Um, uh, are those all related and, and do they relate to even a different culture? Let's say for like Grosswater Dorset. Yeah. Like uh, Grosswater or Meadowood. I mean, yeah, they, exactly. They look the same. Yeah, they, yeah. They like, look and, and exactly. Like, is that is that a bigger connection that that extends from you know the Great Lakes all the way up into Labrador? Or is that something that's you know one is influencing the other in the opposite direction? Right. Yeah. Like, which way is it going? Is it because I mean, and what's really fascinating about that is that we can expect that the Paleo Inuit brought the bow into North America through Labrador, right? I mean, that's if you believe Herb Mashner. Uh, which I, and I, I, I suspect it's I, th I suspect it's probably correct. Um, and so did, did the box base point come with that? I mean, despite the fact that their end blades endorse it, what are the box base points uh, in uh, further south? What were they used for? Were they were they arrowheads or were they used for spear points? They're pretty small. Um, and so uh, so sort of understanding, I mean, the the spread of the bow and arrow, if it did come from the Arctic, it happened in the Atlantic Northeast. That's mm -hmm. a huge question that needs to be looked at. Um, that's a fascinating dissertation. Um, and so um, this, and that can only be got at through typological comparison, right? So. And I, and I, I thought one of the, um, the great things about Adrian's paper, or, or maybe one of the very clever things about Adrian's paper in, um, 
the book Ken and I edited um, and was that he pegged it to the Peterson Sanger ceramic typology, right? So he just basically right. was like, yeah, uh, we're not going to worry about radiocarbon dates. We're going to peg this to this known classificatory system that we already have a, a sense of. Um, and I think there would actually be room for more of that kind of work, right? Like, because we've got these seven ceramic sequences. Um, and so you could, I think you could peg all sorts of things to that. I think it would be really interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, th I think I, pr I prefer the sort of uh, uh, black candy side designation a bit better. Um, yeah, me too. I, I don't prefer the, the ceramic term. I prefer maritime wood. I think it describes a way of life a bit better. Uh, yeah. But um, um, certainly that sort of that that cultural typology, that cultural historical typology is really important. And refining that and, and sort of working towards something that can be utilized throughout the region um, uh, I think is really important as well. I mean, one of the things we try to do in the book, uh, and perhaps not that successfully, is sort of link that up to what's going off, uh, going on north of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, and we can see that these things change in lockstep almost completely. Um, but, and, and while we hypothesize that these are similar people doing similar things and are connected, much more work needs to be done. Yeah, oh man, and I don't know another... why you would say the book wasn't that successful. I owe you at least one third of a steak dinner next time I see you. So, <laughs> <laughs> a, a, another thing I wanted to highlight too that Adrian did a good job of pointing out is that, um, and and this is I, I don't know if it's a um, it's a big question of of uh, in Atlantic Northeast archaeology, but it's certainly a big challenge, and that is that um, the the sort of massive dearth of radiocarbon dates from anywhere outside of coastal settings, and so and and that you know really parsing out this variability that you see in in projectile points in particular occurs somewhere in the interior in what looks to be New Brunswick, right? And and yes. you know, and and there's a huge gap in our understanding of uh tightly dated uh chronologies um in that region, right? And so we have um and in particular we see um uh, big changes going on in the middle to late woodland transition and that is probably the most poorly dated of the interior sequences, right? You know, we have a we have a good sense of everything up to like about the middle woodland, but then as soon as you don't have pottery anymore, um, you actually have very little chronological resolution on a lot of this stuff. And what it looks like is, you know, as Adrian points out, and and you know, this is one of the things that I looked at even in my master's thesis is that from about you know fifteen or sixteen hundred years onwards, you depending upon where you read. Um, it's either side notched or corner notched, and they sometimes line up chronologically, and sometimes they're reversed in another way, and and sometimes they don't use one or the other, right? Um, yeah. and, and you know, when, Brian Robinson when does Lavanna come in or or exactly. Madison, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yep. Brian Robinson drew attention to this with the triangles or notch points, you know, like is there something going on there too? Um, and and I think that the you know, I think a real challenge is that you know we don't we don't have a ton of research going on in New Brunswick in particular but there's some major questions when it comes to lithic technology and understanding these typological debates that needs to be answered in interior New Brunswick where we have really poor resolution archaeologically but, but even more acutely uh, at a at a chronological scale so yeah, i think by chasing out those classic kind of boundary area questions we actually would get to maybe sort of a big question about hunter gatherers in general right which is how how do hunter gatherers maintain their own identities 
as yep. opposed to other people's rights. So just thinking about boundary maintenance, boundary production, all these kinds of things would be really interesting. Sorry, Matt, I interrupted. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, and that's actually a major tension that we mentioned in the book. And one of the grand questions, like, what are the relationships between interior populations mm-hmm. and coastal populations? Yeah. I mean, uh, does the ethno-historic pattern, which occurs, you know, hundreds of years after arrival Europeans, of people on the coast and winters in the interior, we know that that that's not really real anymore. Uh, that we have uh, sort of opportunistic uh, year-round settlement on the coast at some points. Uh, some 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 people going into the interior at other points. Um, but what, especially in New Brunswick, what are the relationship between these interior groups um, and um, coastal groups? And that and that extends back into the archaic as well, right? So yeah. so. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, and what's the nature of Susquehanna? I mean, mm-hmm. tell, show me a coastal Susquehanna site, right? <laughs> well, well, Matt, they invented dugout canoes and they lost interest in the coast. <laughs> They're chasing nuts on the interior. Yeah, and but what does that mean? I mean, we have we have uh, like you know, uh, so if, if Susquehanna is more interior sort of oriented as people have hypothesized. What does that mean for the the dissolution of the late maritime archaic peoples? Uh, like, I, is it is it is it just a trick? We're not seeing them because of sea level rise. I suspect that's really the case, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, and that, and that visibility point's a huge one, right? It's just the degree to which um, coastal erosion, and to some degree, we I mean we didn't talk about it as much earlier, but development, right, have affected yeah. our understanding of the archaeological record. Yeah, yeah, and places like the Lower Willowstig too, like that. Uh, we we don't actually really have a good sense of what what water levels like you know changing dropping and and rising again in that region are are again that's a pretty coarse resolution right like a yeah. you know are we missing stuff because we're not looking in some of the right places yeah. absolutely I think we're running the risk here of of keeping Matt um, up all night chugging um, diet coke and so I I thought maybe where <laughs> where we'd uh, we'd want to leave this and we should probably do another one of these i think we should we should maybe make this an occasional an occasional series where we drop in and have a conversation with uh with all of us about um you know big questions um well, hopefully do... our questions will change over the years as we uh answer some and discover new ones yeah exactly i mean that's that's the key is that the questions change but our answers stay the same <laughs> they, uh... <laughs> i think that, i think only dave black uh, gets that uh, gets that credit right yeah, that, only dave black his, his answers always are are correct that's uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that's the that's the other big um the big theme i think in, in northeast archaeology is that dave black's hunches are always correct that's the that's number yeah. 10 on the list here <laughs> um but the uh i was just sort of curious if um if either of you, um, you know, imagine um, a, uh, you know, a, a, I've had this experience with Matt, right, where I was a young, um, enthusiastic master student, showed up on his project, um, and he gave me a bunch of advice, which was great. Uh, but but so today, imagine it's day one. You're um, either of you two are are talking to a a brand new master student, reasonably well prepared, fairly enthusiastic about the region. Um, do you have any particular advice for them? Mm. scope scope your project like uh like the <laughs> thing is like uh you're working in a sandbox um and uh uh in some cases the there's no walls in the sandbox right and and um hope that you have a good supervisor that kind of keeps things in in check but um there's so much you can do here uh i think you really want to make sure you kind of drill down on on answering something um uh get into the specifics, right? Like, uh, don't approach it like I did, which was 
I'm going to solve the late woodland. <laughs> and the listener should know. I actually disagree with you, Ken. I think I think those sorts of big questions are what people should be swinging for the fences for. Um, um, there's so few places left in North America where you can ask those sorts of questions. Um, and even, even if you didn't solve the Lake Woodland, you push back the frontiers of what we understand, uh, certainly about it. And your dissertation is spectacular. I, 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 I would encourage people to swing for the fence. I'm going to solve the late maritime archaic. Go for it. The, 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 the data is potentially there. Uh, I'm going to figure out uh, a new typology for lithics across the Atlantic Northeast. Go for it, please. Um, so, so Matt, 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 yeah. are we talking MA student? I think I said MA student. Did you say MA student? PhD, yeah, you're on the PhD scale, I think. Oh, am I? Uh, well, yeah, MA? Well, <laughs> so, I, the, this what first, we need is a P, so, we need a PhD what, program. Uh, I, oh, uh, this this uh, is where we need uh, Matt to jump in and say, the, what was the advice Lou Binford gave you about your master's thesis? I'll, I'll tell you that after I say my, <laughs> what, what I would recommend. The first thing I would recommend is, is um, talk very carefully with your supervisor uh, to carve out a niche in one of their projects. And um, it, it would be very difficult for a master's student to sort of go into a community or a sort of cold, uh, yeah. develop relationships with the community. Um, and so what you're really going to have to do is sort of attach yourself to a, a scholar who already has embedded relationships with communities and introduce yourself to that community to sort of build up those relationships. Uh, becoming part of a project that's ongoing, like Gabe's or Ken's, um, or uh, Matt. Have, uh, no. Matt has an adjunct appointment here at UNV, as does, <laughs> as will Ken. His applications with the dean, it's on its way through. So they're they're both available for co supervision here at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's all a great place to start. And to be honest, there's so much left to do on all these sites. Um, um, uh, but I, what I would say is, don't think small. Uh, even a master's thesis uh, based on small stuff can answer big questions. I mean, your Gabe's master's thesis was on architecture. Um, it's a huge topic, and you sort of blew that out of the water uh, for your master's thesis. And um, you, you could have just looked at one half of a house floor, and that still would have been a good master's thesis, but you took on a bigger thing, and and that worked out really well. So Yeah, I mean, some, some of that, though, I mean, uh, like, I, I appreciate that very much, Matt, but you also let me excavate a whole house floor, which was cool. <laughs> Which, i'm not sure i i don't know how much that cost you or your granting agency <laughs> well we were digging other things at the time and you know there was stuff under that house floor and on top of that house floor there that was. we got yeah so it wasn't you know i we got yeah. the community and, we got stuff and at under. one point gabe and i both figured uh figured out uh what was below it and on top of it uh in two adjacent units uh, yeah, absolutely through our, through our opposing excavation strategies yeah i i set that all straight uh, that's why detailed <laughs> note-taking is important um but i yeah i'll, I'll tell you the lou binford story binford and so story, yeah. as, as, as a cautionary tale um and uh, I, the reason i'll tell you this is uh um you'll see why his response was important um when i was doing my master's i was really interested in evolutionary archaeology i thought that it the evolutionary archaeology was very sort of um popular at the time this is we're talking 20 years ago now and and um uh i thought it was the answer to everything that you could understand um a lot of human behavior based on evolutionary archaeology i thought it was it, it was had the capability of describing the variability in the archaeological record um and um so lewis binford came to give a talk at u of t 
uh, he, he hosted and it was like a wonderful thing because Lewis Binford was is such it was such a huge presence in our studies and was such a massive figure in North American archaeology and he was so committed to this visit that he actually only married two of the graduate students while he was there <laughs> <laughs> well he came and um he gave a, a brown they uh, they or uh, organized a brown bag lunch for the graduate students to sort of talk with this sort of great figure which is a a fantastic U of T tradition, actually. They do this with almost every incoming speaker, um, which I had the pleasure of, of benefiting from, too. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember sitting in uh, David Begun's uh, um, lab. That's where we had the brown bag lunch. And Louis Brinver comes in, and he's chewing on his sandwich. And, and um, Michael Chazen asks everybody, uh, do you have any questions for Dr. Binford? Um, and nobody is just silence. Nobody, everybody's sort of awestruck. They they don't know what to say. And and I'll never forget this. Michael Chazen said, "Well, Matt, I know you want to ask him some questions." And <laughs> and so um, you know you know so I was evolutionary archaeology. Uh, Doctor Binford had done a little bit of work on that and and had some some thoughts on it. And so I I sort of launched into my spiel about what my thesis was about and how I was trying to understand uh, uh, hunter gatherer subsistence through evolutionary archaeology techniques and and especially sort of um, proportional hunting uh, strategies. And I, I, I said, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. And I thought I, you know, had the answer. Um, what do you think, Dr. B? Am I going, am I going about it the right way? And it was a long silence. And he started, and, and instead of talking, he took another bite of a sandwich. He was sort of um, um, chewing a sandwich. And he looked at me and said, well, uh, if you chew on your tail long enough, Eventually, you'll reach your anus, and that'll just leave a bad taste in your mouth. And I, I didn't know what to say. I was like flabbergasted. I was like, "Oh my god, he hates what I'm doing." Um, and I didn't quite understand why he was being so rude. And and um, he, he sort of like took another bite of a sandwich. It's clear he didn't want to talk about it anymore, and they just moved on to another another uh, question. And so I sort of ruminated on this for a long time. And I started doing my my PhD, and I was thinking of ways to sort of understand this vast variability in the McKenzie uh, Delta region, the Nuviel uh, archaeological record. And I realized, you know, it was absolutely right. Like if you limit your uh, uh, the topic that you're trying to understand it through a, through a very narrow theoretical lens, you're not going to be able to explain all the variability you see in the archaeological record. And so. Um, uh, I developed a new sort of strategy, which I call the buffet strategy. And that is like, I go to the buffet, I choose the theory that I'm interested in at the time, I have a good meal. And then when I go back to the buffet, I might choose a different strategy, depending on what my appetite is and what I need to know from the archaeological record. So it was a prophetic, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, admonishment, I guess if it was, was an admonishment or perhaps it was, was prophetic. And he realized that, yeah, eventually evolutionary archaeology left a bad taste in my mouth because it you know it's um you like he said you're just chewing on your tail and you, you're not going to get anywhere um other than up your own butt <laughs> so <laughs> listener i'm not sure we can have a better place to leave it than that so i think uh we've been joined tonight by by matt betts and he's the as we said the curator of recent archaeology canadian museum of history his most recent book matt is the uh is actually about something we didn't even talk about tonight um, yeah, it's my hobby. It's it's about a book about HMS Terror and um, her design, fittings, and voyages. It's really not like an exploration of the Franklin mystery, but really just a, a love letter to a really incredible piece of technology, Victorian piece of technology.
Yeah, and I don't even like, I like being on boats. I don't know anything about boats. I enjoyed the book. Um, and uh, we should probably have you back on to talk about that at some point. Oh, maybe. That that would be fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'd probably up our listeners, too. I think we, we, we'd branch <laughs> out a little bit. But uh, Matt, it's been a real pleasure, as always. Um, it's been nice to let the listener in on, I think, um, probably a conversation we've, we've, a series of conversations we had, you know, at the porch at Dirks a bunch of times over scotch. So, yeah, um, as always, uh, this, a real this pleasure. This reminds me of 2010 uh, when we were, we were having these exact conversations uh, every night as we were sort of typing up our notes and marveling yeah. at the stuff we were pulling out of the ground in Portugal. Yeah, Matt slipped in typing. He was an early innovator on the use of iPads in the field. The uh, <laughs> Ken and I have both since converted to writing the rain notebooks, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was. Uh, yeah, it was early convert. I, I still don't know. The jury's kind of out. I people people some people use it, some people don't. I, yeah, well, I actually I have to admit. Uh, I enjoyed using pen and paper on the last couple of projects you were running. So, <laughs> yep. yeah, the, uh, I, I think that's I think that's an episode in itself is uh, uh, the uh, innovation in in tools and archaeology that uh, what works and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, we can we can talk about augers and all kinds of things. Yep. Yeah, augers and uh, we can talk about, um, we should get, we could just have the intro be a series of um, just sounds of people sharpening their trowel. <laughs> yeah, and then and you get the, 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 the you know, all these like strange myths that like if you use an edge grinder, you'll destroy your trowel. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think you will. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but but, um, uh, but yeah, and and to uh, reiterate from uh, from Gabe, thank you, Matt. Thank you for coming on and uh, for sharing, you know, uh, your, your passion, your information about it. Uh, um, and I think we probably... I don't know. We could probably listen back to this and and realize that there are about ten more episodes we could peel off. Uh, probably one for each of these. Maybe maybe thir- the third season will be uh, an episode dedicated to each of the big questions. That's uh that'd be fun, wouldn't it? That yeah. would be fun. The uh, because we we could record them and then we could we could have someone type them up and hope that they were the rough drafts of all these papers that we're about to get frowny faces in the margins for. <laughs> hopefully in three years we might actually have a couple of master's thesis based on our uh, discussion tonight which would be fantastic you know it would as i as i've said listener both of these gentlemen will be available for co-supervision here at uh i mean like you could go to alberta but who wants to be in alberta when you could be you know here in cosmopolitan new brunswick (laughs) it's always sunny it's always sunny in lethbridge it's always sunny in lethbridge (laughs) cool well thank Um, you guys very much that was a fun discussion yeah that was fun um and we really appreciate you coming on Appreciate it. Take care, guys. All right. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Ken, I'm looking at a, a half-finished bottle of uh, of Covassier, but that doesn't mean it's not time for our hit pieces. I think it's time for hit pieces. Good, um, good summer. It's been a good fall here for Northeast archaeology, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's been uh, there's been lots of highlights. Um, you've been you've been hot on the wire there. Your your, your RSS feed for Northeast uh, archaeology seems to be uh, much more dialed in than mine is. That's uh, <laughs> uh, but it's been great to, uh, great to see all this stuff getting pumped out and and uh, and it's been uh, been nice to be able to highlight it too. Yeah, no, it is. Um, and so the first one we're actually going to highlight uh, this week is a new article that um, is quite good by um, Jeff Robinson. He's the state archaeologist at the University of Vermont. 
and it's a chapter in a book called Landscapes of Ritual Performance in Eastern North America, and that's edited by Cheryl Clayson, published by Oxbow Books. Um, and Jess's article um, considers uh, both Paleo-Indian and early archaic ritual spaces. And actually, the this will harken back to, or it relates somewhat to a hit piece we talked about with um, Nathaniel Kitchell's paper on um, color of chert as potential Paleo-Indian um, Cos having Paleo-Indian cosmological significance. And it also relates to Ken's JA paper from 2020? 2020, yeah. 2020, also dealing with Paleo-Indian color, um, or color of Paleo-Indian rocks. Um, but one other thing that's just worth um, flagging about this um, paper is that for the archaeologist who is interested in the transition between Paleo-Indian and early archaic, Jess uh, highlights here a gap um, of some hundred years in radiocarbon dates between food point Paleo-Indian and early archaic, which oh. is um, certainly interesting and worth uh, exploring more. So um, well worth reading, uh, certainly thought provoking, and it's a good chapter. Yeah. And and one of the things that we talked about just uh, with with Matt that you would have just heard about is, is um, the sort of <clears throat> dearth of radiocarbon dates on the Atlantic coast. Um, and, uh, and these sorts of hundred year gaps are the kinds of things, if you have high precision and high resolution radiocarbon dating, you can start to see, um, these gaps, right? The, the modeling allows you to, um, to basically parse out where there actually do seem to be archeological, um, lacuna. <laughs> that's, uh, now that Ken's got a PhD, he starts using words like that. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's how he, that's how he operates now, folks. Yeah. Um, but speaking, um, speaking of this, Ken, you've got a you've got a hit piece. It's a little bit broader, uh, something that folks maybe have seen on their news feeds. Yeah, and so moving from a Paleo-Indian archaic transition, we're talking about the first humans in North America. And so, um, you may have seen in uh, popular media, I, I saw a CNN article and maybe a couple of uh, of other news feeds carried this um, reporting on um, a science um, article. Uh, from uh, Jeffrey Pagati and, uh, and and a group of of uh, uh, co-authors from, I think they are associated with uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, um, and uh, they're working on um, dating at an archaeological site in White Sands National Park in New Mexico. Um, a few years ago, there was a paper published that suggested that um, some fossilized footprints. Um, in the area were uh, dated to somewhere between 20 and 23,000 years ago, um, which is interesting because that actually suggests that humans were in North America prior to the last glacial maximum um, at a time that uh, would have been seeing them basically below the ice sheets and also um, entering the continent before uh, the expansion of sea ice again um, uh, in around 18 to 20,000 years ago. Um, and so uh, this particular article in science um, is basically highlighting some new dating that they've done on this particular site, where the previous controversy um, related to dates being recovered from uh, an aquatic plant called ditch grass. Um, the challenge there is that aquatic plants <clears throat> can sometimes have a um, an, uh, marine effect, um, uh, what's uh, basically the uh, atmospheric um, radio, uh, radiocarbon or carbon 14, um, isotopes, uh, 
age differently in aquatic environments. Um, and I can't remember what the yeah, it's, a, it's a, the marine reservoir effect. Essentially, there the you it worry holds... about the different carbon. Yeah, yeah. So it's it stores carbon in a different way than terrestrial plants or terrestrial um, uh, fauna would. Um, and so you got to be really careful about this when you're dating archaeological sites. So if there's an op, uh, an, uh, potential that um, aquatic species, uh, marine species were consumed by people at the site or were used um, uh, uh, to, um, you know, so terrestrial animals that may have been feasting, may have been consuming uh, marine species, you have to kind of calibrate your dates for that. I, you know, you you date a bunch of coastal sites. You guys have to use marine calibrations in your radio and your charcoal samples and that kind of thing too. Is that correct? Uh, no, we actually studiously avoid anything that was likely to have any marine carbon to avoid the problem. Which is why you date caribou bone. <laughs> exactly, because they're they're not eating shellfish too. <laughs> they are not. We hope. <laughs> so, uh, so the to to perform uh, to sort of uh, counter the narrative that the dates were sort of erroneously old. Um, this research group uh, ran a, se a separate set of dates on non-aquatic pollen grains um, from the same site um, and basically determined that those dates came out to around the same time as the previous ones, um, thus suggesting that these uh, footprints and these people were in this location um, probably legitimately between um, 20, uh, around 23,000 years ago, which is um, very early, 23,000 to 21,000 years ago. Um, it's actually much earlier than even the group of pre-Clovis sites that we talked about uh, in the context of things last uh, last winter in the early episodes of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this is received by the archaeological community, but it's uh, um, certainly seems legitimate, and it's by a group of researchers from a respected institution, um, and it is the redating of a of a particular uh, so this is sort of going back and getting further evidence and that evidence once again, um, sort of supporting this early date. And so what that means, I'm not really sure, but, uh, but it's certainly something to, we'll probably see more information about as the, as the days move forward. All right. Could we get a lead author and a title on that? Uh, so that is by, uh, Jeffrey Pigotti and, uh, Kathleen Springer, Jeffrey Honky, um, David Wall, uh, Marie Champagne, Susan Zimmerman, Harrison Gray, Vincent Santucci, Daniel Otis, uh, David Bustos, and Matthew Bennett. And the title of the article is Independent Age Estimates Resolve the Controversy of Ancient Human Footprints at White Sands. And that's in Science um, Science Journal. All right. Well, we'll have um, even more exciting hit pieces for the listener um, next time. Chatting with you again, listener. We appreciate you tuning in for our conversation with uh, Matt Betts. It's been a pleasure as always. Ken and I are going to um, polish off our covassier here, and we will uh, see you in about a fortnight. Yeah, see you, see you, listener. And uh, we've got some exciting interviews coming up here in the next uh, next couple months. And we, we, sure we may do. we we may intersperse those with uh, some some time just with Gabe and I. We might um, the uh, you know and and I think Ken the other thing we. Um, we would welcome topic suggestions too. I mean, we, we make no promises. We're, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're happy to try to give the listener what they want. Yep. Yeah. We'd be happy to entertain that. And, and uh, as things move forward through the fall, um, we hope to have some other exciting announcements to, to bring to the listener. That's right. We, we, we always have to have exciting announcements. <laughs> All right, listener, have a good night and we'll talk to you soon.
Thank you, listener. Thank you.